From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 155. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Apron, Ting, Encapsula, and Mac Weldon. I am very excited about today's episode as we continue the Upgrade Summer of Fun. Summer of Fun! Summer of Fun! My name is Mike Hurley. I am joined by Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Hi, Mike Hurley. Are you having fun yet? I'm having the most fun. Uh, this is our summer of fun, and we have an extra special fun episode planned for today. How are you enjoying your summer of fun? It's wonderful, and uh, I think what I really want to know is, how are you enjoying your summer of fun? Mike? Nobody cares about that, Jason Snell, because we have some amazing <laughs> guests today. Indeed. Uh, I would like to introduce co-founder of Relay FM, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen Hackett. Hello, Michael Hurley and Jason Snell. And host of Roboism on Relay FM, the wonderful Alex Cox. Hi, Alex. Hi, guys. And the host of a fantastic show called Reconcilable Differences, and it's all he does, uh, Mr. John Syracuse. Hi, John. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Best known as host of Reconcilable mm, Differences. Yeah. No, I think best known as host of Robot or Not. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. How can I forget the, <laughs> on. the number one smash hit of Robo or Not, where they, they talk about whether ships are robots or not. Uh, we have a very special episode today. Um, we're doing a couple of really exciting things. The first of them is we're going to be doing an Apple products draft, which Jason will explain the rules for in a moment, which is why we have assembled this crack team of Apple enthusiasts. The second half is uh, meeting a demand from John Syracuse that me and Jason and John must redo Mike at the Movies Blade Runner with the Final <laughs> Cut edition. Um, this is purely on John's demands, so that's going to be the second half of today's episode. Now, Jason, because we have done so many drafts and I have yet to understand how the rules of the draft work, can you please explain them for our participants and audience? Yeah, so what we're going to do today is we're going to do a draft where, uh, in a series of rounds, everybody in this uh, podcast will be able to choose something from uh, a category. And in this case, the category is Apple hardware. That's it. Hardware made by Apple at any point is eligible for this draft. Once you choose it, it's off the board. Somebody else can't take it. And it's a way for us to discuss some of the great Apple hardware of history. Uh, we'll do a few rounds until we run out of time, you know, two or three, who knows. And we can, uh, the person who picks the, the hardware will say why they picked it. And then we can have a little chat if other people want to chime in. And then we move on to the next person. I believe one of the key parts of a draft, Mike, that you, you have gotten your head around is every draft needs an order. So do we have an order? We most certainly do. Uh, I consulted random.org to generate an order for our draft, and it will go as follows. First will be John Syracuse, then Stephen Hackett, then it will be me, then Alex Cox, then Jason Snell. That is going to be our draft order for the episode. Wow, I am always last to pick. On The Incomparable, I do it as a courtesy. Here, I just get randomly selected <laughs> last. That's fine. It's fine. I'm used to it. It's, it's okay, fine. Jason. It's okay. So uh, I do, before we begin our picks, there's just something that I want to talk about real quick. Uh, right now, we are in our membership season at Relay FM. Uh, throughout August and into September, we have a whole host of fun and exciting things that we do for our Relay FM members. Memberships start at $5 a month, and as a Relay FM member, you get access to a behind-the-scenes newsletter, preview of upcoming shows that we're going to be putting on at Relay FM, a members-only podcast in which Stephen Hackett interviews a couple of hosts about a big topic every month, and also access to a 
feed full of bonus episodes of Relay FM shows that go throughout August and September. And what we have planned for Upgrade is very special. If you remember last year, you may have heard me and Jason and CGP Grey. We did a text adventure together called Six Gun Showdown. Well, we have another one. It's called Spooky Manor, and it is unbelievable, and we're all very proud of it. And that is going to actually be coming out of, on this weekend. So as you're hearing this, uh, if you become a Relay FM member or you're already a Relay FM member, that's going to be going live on Friday, August 25th. So you'll be able to hear us traverse through Spooky Manor, which Jason says with aplomb every single time. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it's not Spooky Manor, it's Spooky Manor. There you go. And uh, I would say <laughs> if you will want to hear this. We had a really yeah, good time yep. and it came together really well. And you can only hear it if you are a Relay FM, Relay FM member. So you can show your support for this show by just going to our page at relay.fm slash upgrade. You can sign up to support this show and become a member. But you will get all of this stuff if you're a member of any show of anything at Relay FM. So go to relay.fm slash membership, find out more, become a member, and you'll get access to a bunch of bonus content that's going to be happening throughout the month. So without further ado... We can hand over to John Syracuse. John, what is pick number one in the Apple product draft? Kind of excited that I got number one because we've done similar things to this before where we ask a bunch of Apple enthusiasts who we all know, uh, pick your favorite something from Apple. And in the past, it's been like, pick your favorite Mac. And a lot of people pick the same thing. So since I get the first pick, I'm going to pick it so nobody else can. My number one pick is the Macintosh SE30. I think not universally, but uh, by majority declared the best Mac ever by people who should know, hmm. uh, including me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what about people that have never used it, John? What do they do? So here, let me let me, let me outline my reasoning. This first of all, the, you know the original Macintosh. We all know that little, the cute little guy. It's all an all-in-one computer. It's it's taller than it is wide. Um, it, you know the whole mouse, graphical user interface, keyboard with no arrow keys on it. It's like very important. Uh, you know, point in history, right? And that form factor lasted for a while. Like, that was a Macintosh. And then you had, you know, the Macintosh Plus, which was just like the, the first one. Or you had the 512 and the Plus, and they all, all kind of looked the same. The surface details changed a little bit. At a certain point, the line started to branch out, sort of like the uh, the iPhone Plus. You get the Mac 2, which was not a cute little guy with a little screen and a little floppy disk mouth and everything. Instead, it was like a big, flat PC-looking thing, but it had color, and it was big and fancy and expensive, and that kind of took the wind out of the sails of the cute little original Macintosh. It's like, oh, well, you've got the original Macintoshes, which are adorable. And then you've got like the big, professional, expensive, expandable thing with card slots and color and all that stuff. Uh, the SE30 was sort of the last great all-in-one Mac because there had been, you know, the Mac 2 was already out. And actually, its successor, successor the Mac 2X, was out. Even more powerful Mac 2. The Mac SE30 was essentially a Mac 2X in the original form factor right and the original form factor has a lot of things going for it as like black and white nine inch screen like just it is the iconic original mac and this was the best one of those that they ever made uh it was amazing internal all shoved into this little tiny thing and as for like the color and the power and everything you could in fact add a 24-bit color card to this thing 24-bit color not 16 colors not 64 colors not 256 colors not 65,535 colors, but millions of colors in mm -hmm. Mac parlance. So you could actually connect an external color monitor to this thing. That's how powerful it was, that you could have two monitors and this little tiny computer. Uh, it was amazing. It was the best 
original Mac form factor and therefore the best Mac of all time because the original Mac is the best Mac. Yeah, as a as a fellow old person, I, I know we're telling stories about the before time for the rest of you, but um, the it's John's absolutely right. I remember um, my first Mac was an SE. The SE thirty was uh, way more expensive, and but it was definitely a cut above because it was yeah Mac two power, but still in one of those little plastic things where you that had its own handle that you just could pick it up and carry it around, and it but it had all that power in it. It was kind of mind boggling how fast it was compared to an SE or the, like later the classic. Um, those were all the kind of baseline standard computer, whereas this was like if you think about like the first Mac this is the pro this is the mac pro the one time that they made that original mac shape with the pro level hardware in it instead of sort of the base level hardware and uh yeah people loved it yeah and expansion even like how they managed to get expand like how can you have there's no card slots and this thing like well actually there was a card slot like you the fact that you could have an external color monitor was just mind-blowing um and and the fact that if you didn't have any expansion it was just a little nine inch you know monochrome black and white screen so you had all this power powering this tiny little monochrome screen. It was so fast. Like if you're used to, you know, using a 512 or a plus or something, and you get one of these. It was amazing. And then you mentioned the classics. They kept this form factor around with the whole classic line and the classic two and then eventually the weird color classic. All those computers were lesser. Yes. They were like, well, you know, that thing, that time is over. These are classic. It's like they're, they're old fashioned or crappy. There's nothing old fashioned about this. This was, you know, the most powerful Mac you could get in this, you know, form factor or any form factor because the 2X was basically the same power, but with uh, color and everything. Um, and so this was the end of the line for, for that, for that strain of the species. All right, Steven, you're up. So I prepared a couple of different lists for this. And one of my lists Gosh. were things John Syracuse will pick in order. And SE30 was first. So he, uh, John, John played right into it. According to form. So my, my first pick, uh, like John thought a lot about this. And the machine I'm going to pick has a lot of similarities to the classic Mac. It's an all-in-one. It looked great at the, uh, for the time and still holds up today. And it was a machine that a lot of Mac lovers really cared about because it was important and that is the original iMac in 1998 Steve what Jobs a surprise comes... <laughs> I know, yeah. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> this is a shocking turn of events shocking I, I kind of left that one for you too <laughs> John and I are, are, are staying on brand today so Steve Jobs comes back to the company the place is a disaster he very famously kills lots of products and introduces uh, the grid of four professional consumer desktop and portable and the iMac was the desktop consumer machine it was uh, – the quote is, it's from a different planet, a planet with better designers uh, wrapped in blue translucent plastic. And, you know, as a computer, it was very basic. It had everything you needed. had a bunch of stuff that people thought they needed, but Apple said no, like uh, a bunch of legacy ports that have been on the Mac for a long time. All those were gone in favor of USB. Uh, digging through old Macworld in May of 1998, Macworld magazine had a – had a, a grid of like 20-something USB devices, and most of them weren't oh, even man. real yet. Oh, my and God. And then just a year later, it was uh, just like just pages and pages of hundreds and hundreds of, of USB devices. You know, I researched that table, <laughs> Stephen. You're bringing back terrible memories. None of those things were shipping. There were no USB products. Everybody saw the iMac, and they were like, uh-oh, we better re- announce some USB products that don't exist yet. We got this. Yep. We got this. 
Uh, this is before FireWire. It's before uh, CD burners and DVD burners. All that stuff would come to the iMac. The iMac G3 proved to be a very flexible platform, and Apple added lots of stuff to it over time. But that original Bondi Blue is a, is a very important machine, and uh, it gets my pick uh, in round one. Can't argue. That's a good pick. That's a that's a, not not a shocker, but no, that was a no, hugely not. important product in the history of the Mac, and uh, yeah, that was the that was the return of goodness to the all in one. I think even John would would agree about that. Oh, not yeah, that no, it that, surpassed, but like yeah, the all in one Mac kind of lost its way, <laughs> especially that Molar Mac. That was what was that about? Be but, nice. Um, Be nice. I have one right here. Yeah. <laughs> But the iMac was cute, though. The iMac yeah. was a little cute gumdrop, like, and, and the fact yeah. that they riffed on, it, in the same way that they riffed on the design of the of the original Mac with you know the the, the plus and the SE and the classic line and everything, uh, that it was it's a sturdy form factor that you could you know do different colors and different styles and slot loading and just play with it, and it was you know adorable the whole time. And it's kind of, you know if you if you had in the eighties, you it said Steve Jobs like okay, uh, there's going to be a computer in the late nineties that's going to be like. Like the original Mac, but all over again, like an all-in-one Mac. What might it look like? Like, imagine a futuristic kind of uh, original Macintosh form factor. You might draw something silly like the little gumdrop things. Like, obviously, you'll never make a real computer like this. But wouldn't it be cool if it was like this weird amorphous blob that was colored? And that's actually what he did. It's like, he even, they even did the hello, you know, advertisement with a little Mac paint hello word written in script, just like they had done with the original Mac. They knew they were doing it, and they did it. And it's like, how can you successfully pull that off to replay your own hits translated into a different decade and and it worked totally so i figured that i was going to be surrounded by everybody's first max right (laughs) i get to go third in the order and i figured that was what i was going to get so se30 was not my first mac mike come on okay okay favorite max then i don't know i don't know how old you are john you you you're you you span all the space and john is timeless yes (laughs) so i uh I get to pick what I consider to be one of Apple's most important products, but I figured I would be the only one to pick it, and it's the iPod Mini. The iPod Mini was my first Apple product, and I think a lot of people that are my age and are interested in this type of stuff now may have fallen in the same hole. Like Apple computers were not as exciting then, I think, for people of my age. They became that way, definitely, because of the iPod and the whole Halo Effect thing. This was an MP3 player that could hold all of the songs that I could ever want in my pocket. And it was tiny, and I had a pink one, and it was awesome, and the screen was blue, and I loved it. And I had every possible accessory. I had like a belt clip, so I could put it on my belt, and then I could just walk around school listening was the to things the with my white earpods. It was the style at the time. <laughs> and this thing completely changed my life, right? Like, it enabled me to be able to have the freedom to listen to whatever I wanted to listen to whenever I wanted to listen to it. And it started me on this whole journey. You know, the iPod mini then became later iPods, which then became my first Mac. And it was it got me into all of this stuff because it was this impossible piece of technology that was just interesting beyond its hardware. The, the idea of what you could do with this thing, what you could put in it, when before that I was using a CD player, right, and could listen to one CD at a time. I even had a mini disc player for a while, right, but you still could only listen to one album at a time. It was this thing you had to carry around a little, like, weird mini discs and just put one in and take it out but the ipod mini allowed me to have everything i could ever possibly want at a time when i started to become interested in music and technology and it was amazing and i love it and a year ago or so i don't have mine anymore but Stephen bought me one so i now still have a pink ipod mini 
which lives in my home. And I think it's one of the most important products for me. And I think just in G- Apple's general history, the iPod Mini is is incredibly important. Yeah, it's the flagship example of Apple uh, cannibalizing itself. Like they had this very successful iPods, and uh, well, the, I guess the Nano was after that. The Mini was incredibly successful, um, and then it was completely replaced by the Nano. And the Mini itself uh, was smaller capacity than the Classic, but uh, you know, n- like the price didn't match the the, the capacity yeah. decrease. And be like, why are you ever going to pay for a Mini? It is so much smaller, but not that much less expensive. Uh, and uh, the answer was because it's pink. That's why. Yeah. And smaller. You had them in all different colors, and they were tiny, and it was wonderful. Like, it was just this wonderful little thing, and uh, I loved it so much. Alex, you're up. All right. So uh, when the iPhone was announced, I was, like everybody, incredibly, incredibly excited, but I looked at this thing and knew that my parents were not going to go for it. So when um, a little bit later, the first generation iPod Touch was announced, I was just over the moon because I'm like, okay, this is something that I can totally sell my parents on that I'm going to be allowed to use all of my Christmas and birthday money to get. Um, and at that time, uh, you know, parents were still afraid of letting all the use on the internet. So I didn't have like, I, I would have to, the iMac I had at the time didn't have, um, an airport card. So I would go downstairs to still have to use the gateway 2000 to get online. It was it, like an animal. <laughs> um, and as soon as I got the iPod touch, it, it, it was kind of like a disaster design, uh, or UI wise because there wasn't a phone. So the icons weren't even uh there was safari youtube calendar contacts clock calculator and then settings and then just a blank space Mm -hmm. so immediately uh i jailbroke it and then there were apps (laughs) uh (laughs) yeah and um cydia was a huge thing and um like that's how the first time i used twitterific um and that's the first time i had internet all over my house and it was just the start of like a beautiful magical life um and then lo and behold my parents were like oh that's that's pretty cool Cool. That's that's pretty nice. So eventually, I did get the first iPhone uh, after the big price drop. But uh, I have a really really soft spot in my heart for the first generation, um, especially because the edges they were like this matte black that almost. Um, it, it was kind of like a precursor to the chamfered edges of the iPhone 5. It was just really pleasing to hold, um, whereas the, the, the rest of the iPod touches for a while then had a metal back that got real scratched up real quickly um, because the metal like went all the way up to the sides, kind of like the um, iPhone 3G. So that this is actually also my favorite iPod touch design. People forget that that original iPod Touch like didn't have many of the apps on it. Apple tried to like prevent people from using it to do anything yeah, other than play yeah. music and then like they did a software update at some point maybe steven remembers when but it was literally like all oh, right we give up just have all the apps it's we fine. also had to pay for them yeah right yeah there was like it was like ten dollars or something yeah because the accounting the stuff. software update mm-hmm. it was very strange i mean i have very similar warm feelings about the original ipod touch and it was high on my list because it was my first iOS device or iPhone OS device. In the UK, the iPod Touch came out before the iPhone because regulations. So I had an iPod Touch for a long time. I have this memory of being on a family vacation in Spain and I'm sitting in the house and just entering contacts into a phone 
into from my phone into my iPod Touch because that was like the best thing I could have possibly done on that vacation. And it was just like playing with the rubber band, scrolling and all that. Like I just was completely lost in this thing. And it, it was it's really important to me too because it opened that whole world up for me. I think this one was also the fastest iOS device or sorry, the fastest iPhone OS device for a while was this this one of the second gen? I always forget. Yeah, and and people forget that. Um, like I know you guys think I'm super young, but this is still at a point where unlimited texting was was a luxury. So what my friends and I did, uh, we basically used Twitter as our texting service um, because no one was on it, and we didn't like. <laughs> sure, you didn't know. Uh, it, wait, it was it all public, or you just doing DMs to each other? Oh no, it was all there was no there were no DMs yet, so it was all public. Um, <laughs> Um, and I go back in time and there are just nonsense tweets um, <laughs> that I'm like, OK, so are we meeting at the mall? What's happening? Oh, we're, we're going to see Rent the Movie. OK, cool. And the whole world can see those. See, this is why your parents didn't want yep. you on the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were right the whole time. <laughs> All right, Jason, do you want to close out the first round? Yes, I, of course, because random.org says I must. <laughs> um, uh, so the original MacBook Air was a terrible computer. Let's just say it. It was. It had like a non-standard video out port that was never used on any other Mac. To get to the USB and headphone jack, you had to pop down a little door on the side that kind of went down a little bit. It didn't. You didn't pop open a flap to reveal the ports. The ports were literally on a door yeah. that kind of dropped down when you flipped it open. And my favorite feature: when it got a little warm in the room, one of the cores would just turn off. Because it couldn't keep it cool enough and your mouse would start to just like not move smoothly anymore and you basically couldn't do anything. But it worked great. If you were in a meat locker, it went at full speed and it wasn't a problem. Then Apple released the second wave. I think there may have been two generations of that first MacBook Air, but there was a second wave MacBook Air. And that was, they did a 13-inch model and an an 11-inch model. Those are the ones that we think of as the MacBook Air basically to this day. And they nailed it to the point where now they kind of can't get rid of it because it's $9.99 and everybody still wants to buy it, even though it's got two-year-old processors in it. Um, it, it is I, My list here of things that I could pick is full of kind of smaller than they should be. Why did they make that laptop, uh, Apple laptops? Because I love the little Apple laptops and the 11-inch MacBook Air is basically my favorite. But I, I want to I take that second wave MacBook Air when the MacBook Air came out, definitely the statement was, this is Apple's vision for what uh, a laptop should be. And while it isn't entirely practical now, it will uh, eventually be. And the second wave went from being not not as overpriced as that first generation, but still kind of like the iPod mini, priced for smallness, right? Like you weren't paying more for more. You were paying more for less in terms of size and weight. And by the time... It's gotten to what is probably the end of its life if if people will ever let it go and stop buying it. It is now the cheapest Mac laptop. And if you look at all the MacBook Pros, they're basically MacBook Airs. The MacBook Pro uh, Escape is essentially a MacBook Air. It weighs about what a 13-inch MacBook Air does. So the MacBook Air has fulfilled its kind of destiny of defining what the future of laptops would be but it's just a great both of the 13 and the 11 they're great laptops and um 
and I have loved mine, and it's probably my favorite Mac that I've ever had is the is the little MacBook Air, which is gone away except in education. So I think uh, I'm going to have to take that that not the first one because it was really bad, but that second uh, second design wave MacBook Air. I think that was one of Apple's great laptop triumphs, and they were right in terms of where the future of laptops was going. Yeah, there was a long time there where when anybody asked you who wasn't a, you know, a software developer or some hardcore geek, hey, what Apple laptop should I get? You'd just say 13-inch MacBook Air. And yep. like, you wouldn't have to have any long discussion about it because it was such a good machine, such a good balance. Like right when the price went down, but it was still fast and before Retina, when there was nothing to be embarrassed about it and everything about it was great and everybody loved it. That was nice. We're, we are out of those days now where there's yes. a lot of caveats and hemming and hawing and, and introspection now we're in the why won't you die phase of the macbook air but it <laughs> or, won't. or even just like there's no there's not an easy go-to for like hey i want to buy get a mac laptop which one should i get you're like oh well, well do you like mm. the small the macbook but it's limited but the mac do you care Pro about touch bar, touch bar oh, but touch id mm-hmm. is nice but if you don't care about that but it's expensive uh, and the, the air still exists don't be tempted by because the screen now sucks oh it's hard I'm basically the person who recommends like um, what what computer everybody should get at my company, and it used to be like you said, oh, 13 inch Air, or if you're doing any any video, this uh, MacBook Pro, and now it's like we actually need to set a meeting aside for this to discuss everything you want. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's go through what yarn. monitor you need. It's ah, <laughs> uh, I miss those days of you know one year ago. <laughs> Days of simplicity. Mike, that's a round done. Hooray! We did it, everybody. So let's take a break. Today's show is brought to you by Blue Apron, the number one recipe delivery service with the freshest ingredients. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone while supporting a more sustainable food system. They set the highest standards for ingredients whilst also building a community of home chefs. Every single Blue Apron meal comes with an easy-to-follow recipe card with every step laid out nice and plainly. And all of the ingredients are pre-portioned as well, so you just get what you need. So that's really easy for when you're putting the recipe together. But also, Blue Apron reduces food waste by making sure to just ship what's required for each recipe. Blue Apron meals cost less than $10 per meal. They all have seasonal recipes. The the ingredients are the highest quality, super fresh, to help you make delicious home-cooked meals in less than 40 minutes. Right now, you can choose from a variety of new recipes, like basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanella, meatball pizza with fresh mozzarella cheese, or whole grain pasta and summer vegetables with heirloom tomato caprese salad. All of this stuff sounds amazing. I am in a hotel right now, and I would love to eat one of these meals rather than just what is available to me in this local area. Uh, Blue Apron will allow you to cook at home and will help you learn the skills that you need to make these meals fantastic and also just to become a better cook in general. There's no weekly commitment. You get the deliveries when you want them, and you can even let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Check out this week's menu and get three meals for free of your first purchase, including free shipping, just by going to blueapron.com upgrade. You're going to love how good it feels and taste to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So get started today at blueapron.com slash upgrade. We'd like to thank them for their continued support of this show, Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right. So, Mr. John Syracuse, we're back to you for your second pick. So earlier you made an inaccurate prediction that we would all pick our first Macintoshes. Uh, although, uh, I don't think Stephen's first Mac was, a, was an original iMac, right? It was not. Yeah. Okay. But now they're on to pick two. <laughs> now's the time true and i am going <laughs> now, to pick now i will now i will my first mac and my first mac was the first mac the product whose name was and i'm kind of disappointed that apple still doesn't refer to it this way in his documentation when i looked it up but the name of the product was macintosh 
the box said Macintosh on it. There were no other Macintoshes. There was just the one. So there was no qualifiers needed. Uh, kind of like iPhone. It was just Macintosh. Spelled out all the way, not abbreviated Mac, which I also don't really enjoy. And this is maybe an old person thing, but the original Macintosh was really a really important product. Uh, these days, everyone will say the iPhone was more important, and they're probably right in the grand scheme of things. For like for mass people, for the entire for the entirety of humanity, the iPhone was definitely more important. But for computer nerds, I would argue that the Macintosh was more important because it, it was like the turning point from a blinking cursor on a dark screen to what we now know as modern computing, where you would, you know, well, the first thing that that strikes me about the turning point is the inversion. Black screen, light text, this inverted it. It wasn't green or amber. It was white, like a piece of paper, and the ink, quote-unquote, on it was black. And the pixels were super tiny. It was the retina of its day. Today, retina, a lot of people, you know, if you show it to them and their vision is not very good, or you show them a retina next to a non-retina, either don't see the difference, or if you point out the difference, it's like, oh, well, I don't care. I don't care that the serifs look a little bit smoother. But the Macintosh, as compared to, like, the Apple II, A, anybody could tell that those pixels were smaller. They may not have cared, but you could tell the pixels were smaller. And B, the things you could do with those pixels. There was, like, a different class of things that you could do. Retina didn't really provide a different class of things because it's not like retina hairlines suddenly open up a new class of application because they're just too darn small for people to see. You can't say, well, now I can make art with retina hairlines and it couldn't before. That's, you know, maybe you could say the photos look a little bit sharper, but that's about it. But the original Macintosh looked different than everything else before it. And then, of course, it had the GUI. And I've, I've said this in, many times in the past, but the, the overriding sense of what made the Mac different from every other computer was that there was this sort of, you know, coherent world inside the computer that you could look at. It was like looking inside a little dollhouse, like, like a little diorama, like here is this little world and you can go in this little world and play it and it obeys a reasonable set of rules and it's like a little toy box, which was so different from mm-hmm. sort of the Enigma machine of a blinking cursor and knowing commands and typing basic into your you know television screen or whatever you're doing before in your commodore 64 or vic 20 or whatever such a hard turn such an important change and so far ahead of everything else and that people looked at this and thought for a really really long time much longer than the iphone they thought this is weird it's not a real computer uh it's just a silly toy this whole gooey thing will never catch on. Uh, computers with mice are stupid, right? We didn't have that with the iPhone. There wasn't like a, a six-year period where, where, where people kept buying Blackberries and said the iPhone was dumb. Everyone else said, oh, we're just going to do that. Like, they, they caught on and they figured it out. With the Mac, there was this long period where we felt like we were the only people in the world using the future, and we sort of were. And so the original Macintosh, super important, amazing, the most mind-blowing product ever to be introduced in my lifetime, from, you know, you know, for me personally, even though the iPhone is more important for humanity, the original Mac is more important to me. I can't dispute this. It was on my list for sure. I'm, I was a little surprised that it wasn't John's first pick, but I, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. How could you, how could it not be picked? It's hard to follow that, but in thinking about products that really change the way we approach computing, my, my next pick is a, it's a little bit of a Trojan horse. So uh, it's a pick within a pick. It's a, uh, a little pick sandwich, and it is the the combination of the original airport base station and the original iBook. 
The original iBook's not that important historically. <laughs> Colorful, it's like a toilet seat. <laughs> We're going on a really interesting route here that I was not expecting. I don't know what sort of toilet seats you use. <laughs> you got two legitimate old people and one uh, old person uh, in training. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so the, the iBook G3, like it's a weird machine. But in the middle of the keynote uh, where they announced that Steve Jobs is is on a, a bright orange iBook and then walks away from the podium as a web page is loading. And that moment is what I'm talking about because it was the the introduction of wireless networking yep. to the Mac platform. Mm-hmm. And the keynote is great. Uh, I, I will dig up a YouTube link for the show notes where he makes Phil Schiller jump off a platform onto mm-hmm. an airbag to prove that it's wireless like while it's <laughs> transmitting data. All sorts of crazy uh, antics. He has a hula hoop going around the computer at, at one point. The, uh, for me, the money moment was, and you know, I'm going to... I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go there, Stephen. When the some brightly colored, uh, you know, bright, bright shirt wearing Apple employees carrying those bright iBooks started coming from the back of the room down the aisles with the iBooks to show people, you know, all of us who were in the room there that they were on the internet. And that was a great little magic trick moment where it's like, and here are these laptops. There's one right in front of you. Look at it loading web pages. And it was all orchestrated. It was a real showbiz moment when they did that. Yeah. And and what that brought into uh, into our lives was being able to use a computer without having it plugged into an internet <laughs> network. And that it seems so trivial today. I have I have two Wi-Fi light bulbs on my desk. And like all of that comes from the technology introduced here. And it it's just amazing. At this point, um, Stephen, I can tell you, um, I, I because I'm an old person, I was living in the same house I'm living in now. We had the, our um, our DSL modem was in a back bedroom, and I had literally a eighty foot long Ethernet cable that snaked down our hallway. You had to step over it down our hallway into our living room to the couch so that we could plug in and be on the internet. Ugh. Man, this is life before Wi-Fi. It was stupid, awful. <laughs> but the, the airport changed that, and it's come a long way. And now Apple maybe doesn't make airport products anymore. But a base station coupled with a bright orange laptop, and you were you were free as long as you were within the you know three hours of battery life, or whatever you got. Mm-hmm. But original airport is uh, is my pick, and it was cute too. Yeah. The the era of cute things. The original iBook was cute, looked like a little purse with a handle, and the base station was cute, looked like a little flying saucer. Yeah, All their UFO. stuff was cute. Mm-hmm. Adorable. And uh, the Adorable. Steve Jobs thing where he made Phyllis Schiller jump off w- reminded me of the uh, scene in Conan the Barbarian where, uh, uh, what's his name, <laughs> demonstrates what power is. You know what power is? That's power. I can, I can make my executives jump. And, and you think about it, like, it, it, it was pretty high. Like, you're if you're working at a tech company, you don't think part of your job description is going to be to jump 30 feet onto an airbag while holding a computer. Mm-hmm. And they had like an accelerometer live on the yeah. on the screen yeah, too. There, so you there, could was, see. there was some silly justification, but it's yep. kind of it was kind of like a, the uh, the leg stealing scene in Guardians of the Galaxy. You feel like Steve is chuckling under his breath all the time. No, yeah, this is important to show the, <laughs> the accelerometer. <laughs> show that, yeah. All right, so we're up to pick number eight, and I am really surprised that we haven't seen the iPhone in this list yet. <laughs> they, I know everyone wants to get their Macs in. Too many old people. <laughs> but I'm, I am very surprised that there's no iPhone. So I'm going to pick the iPhone, but not the original one. Oh, oh good. Hmm. 
I want to pick the iPhone 6 Plus. <laughs> of course. Of course. Oh, oh God. Look. Uh. This is my favorite iPhone. It's not my favorite design, like physically. You know, I would say that maybe the original or the iPhone 5 or 4, I think, are nicer looking. But this was the iPhone that I really wanted. Like, since the original, this was the one that I wanted the most because it had a bigger screen and it had a bigger battery. And they were the two things that I really wanted from a phone. And I had been an I've a plus size believer since the beginning when everyone thought it was ridiculous. Many people still do think it was ridiculous, but I was immediately sold on this as a device that I wanted because it was the best of everything for me. Like, why would I not want a bigger screen for my most important computer? I want to get more information on it. I want to be able to read more. I want to be able to see more. And I think that the plus line of phones was a fantastic decision for Apple. I think it helped as, you know, the numbers show it really propelled them forward even further into markets that they were looking to try and attract. And I think that it was fantastic and they've continued to do great things with that line. You know, it's, it's the line that seems to get some features first because they can put them into the bigger body. Um, and, I hope that even though we're going into potentially uncharted waters with the iPhone, I hope that into the future we continue to get this model that's just a little bit bigger than what most people want because there are some people like me that always want to be in the Plus Club. Not surprised. I know it upsets you, Jason. No, no, I think that was the mic, the most mic pick that there could ever be. I think it was really important for Apple to introduce a bigger phone. Like I was, yeah, I still want them to introduce even bigger iPads and I always want them to do a bigger phone. The question was always... Uh, like the the bigger phone, but other people will buy it, not me. But to see <laughs> Mike and other tech enthusiasts somehow find room in their life and in their pants for this monstrosity <laughs> is always uh, surprised me. I have big pants, John. Don't worry. They're, they're, they're massive. City of big so pants. That's what they call yeah. London. Uh, I tried for nearly a year to find jeans that would fit it. Nope. Nope. So... <laughs> I'm Did sorry. you check the, like, a, like a clown shop? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe magicians, you know, they could have big pockets, right? You might be able to get something that way that might look kind of normal. Magicians could help you out. Alex, you're up. All right. Uh, I'm going to go with another iPhone, but not the original iPhone. Um, the iPhone 4, which is probably my favorite iPhone. Um, it introduced Retina, which felt really magical. I'm sure they said that on stage. Um but like holding it in my hand and looking at it, that was the first time it felt like this is a device that is supposed to disappear. And it felt like the perfect size, the metal on the edge was just so cool. Um, and also this is kind of a pick within a pick, like, uh, when antenna gate happened and like supposedly people would squeeze the phone and you would get less reception. Uh, that was the first time I, re- I remember like there being a big Apple scandal. And so then they gave everybody, uh, a free case or a free bumper case that had purchased an iPhone 4. And that's also, that bumper case is the only good iPhone case Apple has ever made. Now they make these terrible, squishy, squeaky, like plastic things or leather ones that immediately, uh, like the patina isn't like a normal leather patina. It just rips and falls apart. But this bumper was like exactly what you wanted. It still showed off 
uh, the iPhone 4's design, it still like disappeared and looked like it was part of the phone. Um, and it, there were a lot fewer cracked screens, even though both sides were made of glass. I think this was also the first time the uh, Kindle app came to the iPhone. Hmm. So that was a dream come true. My library was in my pocket. I think this is my favorite industrial design family. Like the iPhone 4 and 5 all are of the same design. Like the 5 got taller, mm-hmm. but they're all the kind of two flat surfaces with the the ring, like a little baking mold around the outside. <laughs> and uh, it looks, it's very much, looks like a brawn razor or something. It's, it's I like, I, I think it's a very pretty design and, and we lived with it for whatever, four years. Um, and this was where it came in. And of course it was lost in a bar and found by Gizmodo. So it's got that going for it too. Oh Yeah. <laughs> The four design was also my favorite. I think it was uh, absolutely the, the the most attractive and the best design for its era. Because obviously, eventually, the phones got bigger, and you know, if you look at one today, they look minuscule, right? And I think it was you know it was the wrong size. Like I think the the seven six are more closer to the right compromise for size, but back then, you know, cost and and uh, the the screen and all that other stuff, there was a lot going into it. Um, but if you look at the original, like what what Apple's industrial design team wanted the iPhone to be. I forget what this design was called. It had some code name. This is what they wanted to make and they couldn't make for years. Like they said, this is what the iPhone's going to look like. It's this weird, you know, ice cream sandwich thingy or whatever. And they just couldn't do it. And so they made the original iPhone and the 3G and the 3GS before this one, but they didn't give up on it. So like, we want to make this phone look like this. And eventually they did. And I think it kind of shows like, this is what was in their head. You know, if you, if you put the four next to the ones that came before it, they all look like, weird attempts to do something and the four just looks like completely realized and i also love that bumper because it had the 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 rubber grips on it like that it fulfilled Mm -hmm. it actually made it like less slippery in your hand instead of just sort of you know either more slippery or or not changing it at all because the rubber right when your your hand met it and you did you got to see the shiny glass back and the glass front probably again probably not a great idea but boy that phone looked good yeah and i think that the um one of the I, I don't entirely agree, John. I think that the the six and seven design is actually the one that's the most direct descendant of the original, which I think is Johnny Ive wanting to make a like super curvy, curved edges, curved to the back kind of thing. It, it wasn't a Johnny Ive. Don't you remember in the court case they said like here are possible designs for the iPhone, and one of them was the ice cream sandwich one, and when one of them was more curvy, and the ice cream. It wasn't Johnny Ive specifically. It was some other guy I think came up with the ice cream sandwich one, and they couldn't do that one. Yeah, my point so is that the, there's sort of two different design directions and with the four or five ice cream sandwich design they went with sort of design direction b and i I do think it is a fantastic design whereas the six and the seven feel like those are uh uh, descendants of design direction a which was that original phone which is super curvy um and it's funny that apple has flipped back and forth of course you can still get the se which has this design today my favorite in this family was the five because it had that it had the black phone for the five Mm -hmm. that was like the darth vader phone and i love that and i like that it was a Mm-hmm. slightly bigger but it was yes black until you touched it but yeah, yeah it's true i had to put it in the case but it was be so beautiful but it's great design has ice cream sandwich design become canon now is this the term i don't know no it had a code name in, in the court case they had like a diagram and a code name for that design i forget what it was though that does look like an ice cream sandwich kind of um so i'm gonna close out the second round by out outdoing john as the oldest person on this podcast because i'm going to take you back to a time when apple didn't make macs they made some other they made some other products (laughs) and i'm going to select uh one of the first computers that i ever used i'm going to pick the apple 2e 
and now they're Apple II enthusiasts out there going, no, but like the Apple II Plus originally didn't do lowercase. Um, the Apple IIc is a an interesting example of Apple kind of trying to do a closed case product, which they would end up doing a whole lot of in the future. But I, I love the Apple IIe. I had an Apple IIe. You could pop off the top and it had expansion slots in it. Uh, I had a couple of floppy drives. You know, I, it drove a color monitor. Um, I played games on it and wrote short stories on it and wrote school papers on it. Um, it was definitely, uh, different people can, people can debate like the Commodore 64 and things like that. But to me, this was the computer until I saw a Mac for the first time. And so my, uh, my, uh, desire for Apple products and my love of that, uh, six color rainbow logo goes back to the two E and uh, it was the I think the sweet spot in the Apple II line um, because it was you know it preceded the two C and was more expandable, but it corrected a lot of the problems of the two plus. And you know you could boot into Apple uh, DOS, you could boot, boot into Pro DOS, you could run at eighty characters per line or forty depending. And you know every now and then I take an Apple II emulator out for a spin because uh, that's pure nostalgia for me. Also, I played Karatika on. Uh, the apple II, mm-hmm. and that was the best game ever so yeah apple IIe. amazing longevity and education too because i'm i'm not as uh, old and decrepit as jason but i used apple IIe's in high school <laughs> like in the school in high school yeah they were teaching classes on apple IIe's, which even then were old they, they had two gs's in the library and they had Macs in the school paper office but the two e's was like they had the most of them there was a whole room full of them and they were still actually using them pretty amazing yeah well i mean even in i I think you're like five or six years younger than me but like the apple IIe, the mac had been out i graduated from high school in 1988 the mac had already been out for four years but the computer lab was entirely apple twos um and i took an apple II to college with me because i i didn't get a mac until my sophomore year in college and and it it performed admirably although it, it was not what i would call a compact machine by any stretch of the imagination once you attach the floppy drives and the monitor and got it all set up but it was uh it was great and you could just write a program 10 print hello 20 print go to 10 it was just right there no work required to write a stupid program i wish i could say anything i've literally never seen an apple two in my life you can go to that's, a museum. that's kind of on my bucket yeah it's on my bucket list i've also never just seen go an to original Stephen's macintosh house. yep that's <laughs> <laughs> in in high school or uh, rather in middle school we our computer lab only had molar max for some reason i yes. feel like it would be steven's dream that's a, more, more dream. like a nightmare i think but <laughs> <laughs> that's when they fall out it's oh. a fever dream earthquake at the molar map lab hmm. <laughs> all right so that closes out the second round so i'm going to take a moment to thank our second sponsor of this week's show and that is ting ting is a mobile phone service believe it or not, wants to help you save money. Ting believes that you should only pay for what you use. And with prices like 10 gigabytes, so $10 for a gigabyte of data, the average Ting customer pays just $23 a month per phone, $10 per gigabyte of data. If you are in the US and use a cell phone, which I'm sure probably most of you are, you will love what the folk over at Ting can do for you. Ting doesn't believe in contracts, overage fees, or unlimited plans that are full of catches. They have top-rated, no-hold customer support. When you call Ting, you get through to a real person. They are focused on offering the best prices that they can for their customers, and any savings that they're able to make, they pass on. 80% 
of devices made in the last two years can come to Ting and use their amazing network because they support both GSM and CDMA. Ting will even allow you to get the latest iPhone as soon as it comes out, along with Apple Care 2. So they have all of the Apple devices you could ever wish, and when the next iPhone comes out, you'll be able to get it directly on Ting. If you're currently stuck in a contract, they'll offer you 25% credit for your early termination fee. So if your current provider wants you to pay to get them out, they will give you a credit of up to $75 per device that you bring to Ting. To get started, head over to upgrade.ting.com and use their handy device checker to confirm your phone can make the move. And if you're looking to upgrade, they have a plenty of options available for you to grab a new handset in their online store. Listeners of this show can get $25 to selected devices or Ting credit. Just go to upgrade.ting.com and see how much you can save. We thank Ting for their support of this show. All right, so we are on to round three. So we're going to head back over to Mr. Syracuse. All right, continuing the uh, trend slash theme, I'm going to pick another Mac for my number three choice. Uh, This Mac is vaguely relevant to our current times in two ways. First, the fancy new edge-to-edge screen iPhone with a notch on the top or whatever is supposedly codenamed Ferrari as a expensive but lower volume, but, you know, super-duper fast, presumably, you know, model in, in the line. And also, today, as we await the sort of kind of announced for the future Mac Pro, which is not coming this year, but sometime in the future, that will be like the return of the big bad Mac, the Mac that is spare no expense, make it as fast as possible, make it awesome and also awesomely expensive. And so for my number three pick, I am picking the Macintosh 2FX, one of the best names ever for a computer because fx is cool x's are cool and fx looks nice um and it was a mac that was faster than all the other macs more expensive than all the other macs and filled with stuff that was you know it's not like a parts bin mac and most of them weren't parts bin macs back then but lots of custom stuff inside there to make it the best and of any of the macs like every part of this computer that wasn't better than its predecessors they made it not just a little bit better but a lot better and a lot more expensive um, it, uh, it was on the cover of Macworld magazine with the, uh, famous, I don't know how this line became famous because it's not even that exciting, but it was, uh, everyone knows who was alive this time that the Mac 2 of X is wicked, wicked fast, fast because that's what they wrote yeah. on, on the cover of the magazine. <laughs> and, and it was, and oh, yeah. it was a type of computer like a Ferrari. Most people never saw. Like, it was years before I saw a Mac 2 FX, because where were they? Where could you even... Who had one? They were they cost as much as a car, right? You could see a Mac 2 if you were lucky and you went to your local reseller, but they wouldn't have a Mac 2 FX out on the, on the floor. And again, using it, this is kind of weird because most people don't have this experience. Well, maybe you did with it in the Mac OS X era. Like, how do you tell whether a computer is fast? Back in the early days of the Mac, you could tell a computer was fast because it did, it did all the GUI stuff perceptively faster. Like, you'd pull down a menu and move your mouse through the menu, highlighting the items as you go down, that was perceptively faster on a Mac 2FX than it was on its siblings. Uh, Opening and closing windows, right? The little rubber banding animation, opening and closing applications, you know, there was just just using the computer, you could tell it was faster. And you don't get that feel that much these days because in the modern era, even a slow iPhone, maybe the animations are a little bit jumpy, but scrolling is generally good everywhere. And, you know, on the Mac, it used to be resizing Windows, but that was slow everywhere. And no matter how fast the Mac you could get, it was like more of a software problem than a hardware one. The Mac 2FX was like a Ferrari, an expensive lust object, and the original embodiment of, of speed, of power and speed in the Mac line. 
I have no idea how my college newspaper in 1991, when the Mac 2FX was a currently shipping model, got a Mac 2FX, but we did. And it was, or, or it might have even been 90. It was like right when it came out. And I don't know how we got one. We didn't get it my first year there, but my second year there, we had a Mac 2FX. And that was an update because originally our fast Mac was a 2CX. We got the 2FX. And I'll tell you what a great demo of how fast it was was is uh, in PageMaker, which we used to lay out our newspaper on a Mac SE. You would do this. I think it was like command option click would take you to 100%. So you'd be zoomed out to look at the page layout and it would actually Greek the text. It wouldn't even show you try to draw the text because it would be too small. So it just was like the text was just gray bars. And then you do command option click and it would go to 100% and it would redraw the screen, the screen zoomed in at the point where you clicked. And you'd sit there and watch PageMaker laboriously draw the frame of the page, and then it would flow the text in, and maybe if there was a graphic or an image, you would draw that in. And you would just sit there and wait. And on the 2FX, you would do that same thing and go click, and it'd be like, boom, there, there you were at 100%. Like today basically except for us that was the difference so we fought over who got to use the 2fx of course but it was startling how much faster it was than the 2cx let alone the se's that we were using it was amazing i'm so happy this is one of those rare cases where i got to use the top of the line mac uh it's the first time i ever got to use a top of the line mac and i didn't even realize it at the time i just knew how fast it was and it was awesome i remember the hard drive sound because it had a fast hard drive in it too so like you'd be moving around on a page and normally you'd hear this kind of very slow hard drive sound coming from the inside of like an se and on the 2fx it was this it was this distinct tick sound and it would be like tick 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 and then it was loaded it was magic it's amazing amazing computer huge too it was not like all the two C's were all these little tiny boxes, um, like a like a donut box or something. And two FX was not. It was a, it was just massive. It was a slab. It was uh, it was nothing like a uh, like a little computer. It was a, a huge slab of metal, basically. On my John Syracuse prediction list, the two FX was second. So <laughs> we got there. Still rocking and rolling. So I think I'm gonna go with the theme of my first Mac. And that comes with some caveats. It was actually a a, uh, a company computer, but the boss let me use it as my own. So I sort of I, I took it to college with me. I used it for years, even when I worked for them, like very part time in college. He basically just let me keep the machine. And that is the Titanium PowerBook G4. First time we'd seen a G4 in a notebook. Before this, the the PowerBooks were all plastic. They had been gray for a long time, and then they were black with the the G3 series and curvy. And the logo was upside down when you opened the lid, which made everybody sad. In fact, when Steve Jobs introduced this, he showed the back of the computer and everybody laughed and he made fun of it. And it, it was, it, it set the tone for the, the MacBook, the PowerBooks and the MacBook Pros we still use today. My MacBook Pro sitting here on my desk. It's thin, it's made of metal, it's uh, got rounded edges, it's very clean looking. And the titanium. And it reduced all of that stuff. Now, it had its problems that I'm sure people will point out, mainly that the paint would flake off and sometimes the screen would just come off the hinges. Totally fine. Just ignore those problems because it's a beautiful machine. And I had the one gigahertz model, had the fast, had a, uh, I think it had a super drive in it, uh, a gig of RAM. It really was a, a killer machine for the time and and one that... um. I still, I still like the way it looks. It's kind of busy compared to the aluminum that would follow. Lots of different surfaces and, and colors and textures, but I, I, I think it looks great. And it was an inch thick, and it just it blew my mind at the time. 
uh, and looking back, it, it's it's sort of the grandfather for all the notebooks that we that we know today. It's also the ice cream sandwich school of design. Yeah, I remember that was <laughs> that was introduced. Uh, like you know, we were waiting for a G four to be in in a power book. And then when I was introduced, and they showed like the side view, and it was like you know one inch thin, or whatever the mm-hmm. marking thing was. Like people gasped, like it's, it's like a we're like oh maybe they're going to put G four in there, but that's going to be really hard. And B the fact that it got thinner, like we weren't used to that at that point. That Apple, I mean, we should have been. But I don't know if this is before or after the Nano, but it was like a mini to Nano transition. This is the best fastest computer with this amazing super drive thing in it, and it's incredibly thin. It was shocking. That computer was shocking. It was one of the one of the first sort of future tech, kind of like the MacBook Air. Like you can't make a computer like that. Right. Pretty amazing. Yeah, it was it was uh it was before before the mini. In fact, it was I think the as I stall as to, to look this up, I think it was uh before even the original iPod. I mean this was this was early days. It was two thousand. Yeah. And um yeah, I love the Wall Street and successors that were those first really kind of like redesigned Steve Jobs era power books, but they were still big plastic blobs. And yeah. th- this was not. This was a metal thin metal laptop, and guess what? Every pro laptop they made after this looked like this. I mean, although it mm-hmm. took them, they realized titanium, not a good material, but they got there. But this was the first iteration where you could see where they were going with it. And, uh, you know, it was the first one on the on the path to what we think of now as the MacBook. Is this the first product that apple made using a premium material uh, well i mean they played John, johnny i was playing with materials but they weren't premium materials they were like translucent plastic bits and stuff like that yeah. whereas it was 100 percent titanium it was no. like magnesium and a bunch of like it was yeah. it was titanium the titanium name was as much marketing as it was yeah. reality yeah it was a mix but of it's like the first time that they really is it like the first time they made they made a point of it right like this is the titanium because you yeah. can call it the plastic computer, yeah almost right? luxury like, luxury like yeah in feel yeah i think so and the thinness of that screen which again i think came back to bite them and they they moved away and made those screens a little bit thicker and more rugged than that one because it was so kind of too thin but it was amazing to to move that hinge and feel that super thin screen that was that was it wasn't just that the computer was one inch thin it was that the screen part of it was like impossibly thin yeah they'd show all the the side views in the marketing like they showed from the side and they were just it looked impossible look like you can't make a computer how could how can it be that thin yeah exactly right and then and then your kid just snaps it off with one hand uh, (laughs) and and you realize this is bad yeah Mm -hmm. good times anytime i open mine i sort of say a prayer to the uh to the gods of industrial design first (laughs) yeah please not this time (laughs) i'm gonna pick a device that uh changed how i think about computers um and it's the ipad pro 12.9 when this device was introduced i was interested but i'd had a weird relationship with ipads over you know since 2010 to, to this point so this is what this was 20 was this the end of 2015 when the ipad pro 12.9 came out yeah so you know the, those five years of the ipad i'd kind of gone back and forth a lot you know from thinking it was amazing and i loved it to just getting bored of it and stopping using it and just going back to my macs and when this device came out iOS 9 was kind of in beta and I've been playing around with multitasking on a, on an iPad Air and was thinking that this is this is pretty interesting like I I like the way that some of this works and I was intrigued to see what was going to happen and then the iPad Pro came out and it was interesting I picked one up and it changed everything I found myself being drawn to using iOS to do all of the work that I could possibly do on it 
I'm aware of how it can be more difficult, and especially when this came out, it was even more difficult to to try and do all of these types of things on the iPad than it is today. You know, multitasking was very much in its infancy. But there was just something about the whole package of this beautiful big screen, which was, you know, it felt really nice to hold, and it was lighter than the laptop that I had at the time. Plus a keyboard that was also a case and a stand, you know, that, that would protect the screen, but I could also stand it up to watch movies. And the Apple Pencil, which was a fantastic device for me. You know, it, it felt better than any stylus I'd ever used. And it allowed me to be able to change my input methods during a time when I was starting to struggle with RSI problems. And being able to use the Apple Pencil to navigate the UI was kind of, was perfect for me then. And it changed the way I think about computers. In, in my mind now... Macintoshes are production machines. They are where I do professional things. I, I record and edit podcasts and videos on Macs. Once the editing is done, the Mac gets turned off and I go back to the iPad to do everything that I want to do. My, my entire business, all of the stuff that I would do to run a business day to day is run from an iPad. And I wouldn't change it because I love it. And the 12.9-inch iPad Pro was what opened this up to me because it finally became a device where the hardware and software really met for me and it just made perfect sense. I, I had this on my list because um, uh, I, I knew we somebody needed to pick an iPad and it was definitely on my list because of that. It's I, I couldn't... My, my love for small laptops apparently is inverted into large iPads. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> but small laptops and large iPads are basically the same kind of size, yeah. right? Like You're they, in they the meet middle. in the middle. But I have a strong preference for the 11-inch MacBook Air over the 13, and yet now I use a 13-inch, essentially, iPad. I don't know what happened there. But Shh, don't, don't, don't think about it, Jason. It's confusing. Very confusing. <laughs> I'm just going to let it go. This has actually turned into like my family computer now because, uh, it's, it's kind of unnecessary for my wife and I to like share our laptops and just inconvenient. But, um, and I know that iOS is sort of counterintuitive to having like a family share it, but it's just so great to move it everywhere. And it, it, it feels like my home iPad. Um, and I, I don't know. It, it's this weird, soft spot that like i i i initially held it and thought i was going to return it and thought no way this is just too much um but it's still kind of my main note-taking computer and it is how i i just completely changed it changed the way i thought about ios um and also it really clicked like okay now i am the old person and this is the future um this is the ipad long game yeah, I was so glad when they came out with a bigger iPad because I always felt like, I mean, when they, when they came out with the iPad, there was this promise before they introduced it of like, what could iOS or you know iPhone OS or whatever be, what would it be like on a bigger screen, like a tablet size screen? And when they came out with the iPad and it was so similar to the phone, it's like, yeah, it seems like leaving money on the table here. Like there's more you could do, like the device will become even more powerful. You just make it bigger. And then the stylus, obviously adding a whole other dimension to that on the keyboard. And when you have a keyboard, it can be a reasonable size, like just so great to see them break out of the i feel like it's kind of the in-betweeny form factor to say if this is going to be the future of computing it's got to be bigger got to be bigger more powerful more flexible and I, I hate i hope they keep going in this direction i was also glad when they didn't you know uh unify on the 10.5 inch but right. but upgraded to the 12.9 as well so i say keep going with this and i'm, I'm ready for one that's even bigger alex all right, so I am going to finally pick a Mac and not uh, an iOS <laughs> 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 device. Um, I 
So this was the last consumer laptop I used. And I, I think this is the, the Mac that I used the longest. Um, it's the Apple MacBook, MacBook Core Duo 2.0, also known as the black, uh, macbook basically and i remember getting this only because i thought the color was really cool um and i could get it used uh at at, like the base price um and this is also the first laptop that i could get like i could get into the guts of it um and i maxed out the ram and maxed out the hard drive uh it, it it was kind of constantly lighting uh lighting up in strange ways like the screen wasn't great it was the first glossy screen i think in the macbook line um and also it, it like set my thighs on fire at, at least once a day because it it was so to speak yeah, yeah <laughs> it, it was n- not it? supposed to have two two gigs of ram, ram um but yeah i i just slowly upgraded over the years and it lasted i think from middle school all the way until i graduated high school and it just uh even even today um it just looks nice. I don't know. It, it also is mm. one of my favorite um, keyboards they ever had, despite the fact that um, I, I think this was their first black keyboard on a a laptop or sorry, and a uh, Mac. I don't even know how to qualify this a MacBook. Uh, I know that the old PowerBooks had them, um, and it was also my first Intel Mac, so I could. Uh, what was it? Boot into, uh, I don't remember even what it's called anymore. Um, boot camp. Boot camp. Yeah. And I could play Steam, um, on the other side of my laptop. And it just felt really cool. Uh, and I learned a lot about computers from this one laptop. So not important in the big scheme of Apple history, but important to me. I love this. I had, I had a black MacBook and I loved it. This was the, the era where if you wanted a smaller, uh, MacBook, um, then the MacBook Pro, you know, you got you got an iBook, and then the MacBook came out for uh, which is the the name change was when they went to Intel, and uh, the black version initially cost more and didn't have anything more other than the color, but it looked so cool. I loved it so much, and you're right, you could get to the hard drive and the RAM through the battery bay, so it was super easy to upgrade it. And uh, I wish Apple would make a you know legitimately black laptop again, not this space gray's fine, but this one, yeah, it looked so cool with the white Apple logo and the and the the black uh, polycarbonate. It was great. Yeah, it had the same problem of looking good as long as no one touched it, which is kind True. of a shame. Is like now now they have the tech like the uh, the matte black iPhone. I feel like that finish holds up pretty well, both to fingerprints and to scratches. Imagine a Mac laptop that was the same color as the matte black mm-hmm. iPhone. That would be great. Yeah, it'd be awesome. I, I do think that plastic MacBook was important though you know the black one was more expensive i think that you got more hard drive space but it was basically the same computer but at least when i was in school though in college um those macbooks were everywhere like it really Mm -hmm. seemed to to gain market share well above what the ibook uh or even like something like the 12 inch power book every did And, and like the air like jason said earlier for a while there, you could just say, hey, get a MacBook. Get the white one. Uh, if you got a little extra money to spend, the black one is way cooler. But it's it's sort of a well-rounded machine for everybody. And even though it wasn't a MacBook Pro, you could still get some production work on done if you needed to. Uh, I think it was uh, a great machine. And you know, they had, again, like, all, like a, many of these models that had problems. 
The black one was a little better about the chipping and the staining that the, the white plastic uh, ended up being plagued by, but definitely a, a cool machine. I remember my brother had a black MacBook, and I had a I had a MacBook Pro at the time, and even with the MacBook Pro, I was envious of how cool his MacBook looked, so stealthy with the mm-hmm. black plastic. I still think they look great. Yeah, this is an important computer to me. It was my second ever Mac and my first laptop. Um, I absolutely loved it. I had the white one. Uh, I had little pieces of the wrist rest cracking off and <laughs> but like I loved that thing you know like the also the wrist rest started to go yellow over time which was lovely um Ugh. but that was just Ugh. a absolutely fantastic computer like it opened my eyes up to what it would be like to have a computer that wasn't fixed into one position you know and it was I absolutely loved it it was a great looking thing I, I that was that was a, a fantastic mac Oh, this was also, I realized my first Mac with a DVD player. And this is when Netflix, you know, uh, still sending out discs. And so I, I, this was my early binge watching experience. Just getting That's all awesome. of those seasons of Doctor Who via <laughs> disc. That's great. All right, Jason, you've got the last official pick. Yeah, I know. I'm going to close this out. So I, I had a bunch of things on my list that when we bring out our dead here in a minute, we can we can talk about. Uh, but I feel like they've been... I've got an iPhone, but it's we've had iPhones picked. I've got an iPad. We've had those picked. Um, so I'm going to go with something that has not been picked yet. And also it firmly places me on team old, but it's super important. So this is an Apple... Uh, Apple hardware product cost seven thousand dollars when it was was released <laughs> in in nineteen eighty five. So that's uh, that's like more than fifteen thousand dollars today. But you know what? In some ways, oh. it was the most important Apple hardware product released. I would argue in the top five like most important Apple products of all time because of what it did for the Mac and the and the uh, different fields. And industries that it revolutionized. It's the laser writer, which introduced. Uh, I, I very. <laughs> I, okay. <laughs> it, oh, you, know, I, you better be agreeing with me because I'm right. The laser writer. The, that's, that's it, a brilliant. Pick. It is the first time. It, it's it's postscript. It allowed WYSIWYG publishing to exist. It let you print on regular paper at 300 dots per inch, which is impossibly good, like print quality, essentially. The laser writer changed everything. It made Apple successful in publishing. It made Adobe exist basically it completely changed the publishing industry it created desktop publishing it created service bureaus where people could go and get their stuff that they made on their macs printed at high resolution because that was a thing that you did back in those days when it cost seven thousand dollars is you would take your files and fonts you better remember to bring your fonts or it's going to be ugly (laughs) and you'd take them down to the local place that had a laser printer a laser writer and you would print it out the first time i printed a paper we had a laser printer we had a laser writer in fact, at my college newspaper, along with a giant image setter that was like the size of a car that did 600 DPI. And uh, I would print out uh, college papers on it. And it was like unreal. It was like I had had a, a letterpress make my papers for me. It was so unbelievable because in those days, everything was dot matrix. Everything looked crappy. And then this was real stuff. And now we take it for granted. And people have moved on to things like, uh, you know, everybody's got an inkjet printer now. But th- that laser printer, cha- it really did change everything. Thing. It changed the computer industry, the publishing industry, um, and a lot of people's lives. Because without 
the laser printer, you were printing, you know, your beautiful Mac graphics and fonts and things, and then they would end up on like a, an inkjet printer and they would not look very good. But when you did it on the laser printer, they looked as good as anything you could get from a professional print shop, as long as your design skills were good. Otherwise, it still looked like a clown made it. Anyway, uh, I know it's a wacky pick, but everything else, we, you made, you've all made some great picks, and I, I wanted this oddball piece of Apple hardware. We don't even think about it now. Super important that this product existed, and uh, it, came, it came from Apple. Uh, Apple was the one that made it happen, and that means something, too, that Apple didn't sort of say, boy, I hope somebody makes a printer for our, our Macintosh. They're like, no, we're going to make it, and they did. Did you mention this was also the most powerful Mac for a while, or the po- most powerful Apple computer for a while? Did you mention that uh, earlier? I, I didn't, but yes, it, it, it was uh, the stuff on the inside was, I mean, there's a reason it cost $7,000. It was, it was right. bananas. It had, <laughs> it had a, a 12 megahertz Motorola 68,000 CPU so it, and, and 512K of RAM. Uh, and so at that point, it was more processing power because the Mac only ran at 8 megahertz and the LaserWriter ran at 12 megahertz. Yeah, I don't yeah. disagree with the importance of this pick. I just never could have picked it. You know, like if you was like, I know that's why I'm work here. on Jason's list. <laughs> that's why it I'm never here. would have come up. Right. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, and it, it's another one of those things where you kind of had to be there in terms of, uh, computers printing things, not just like this is pre inkjet, right? Dot matrix printers and not, not good dot matrix printers, bad, bad, dot matrix, very dot bad. Matrix printers where you could see the dot. So if you had a computer at home and this is my experience and you handed in a paper for school, instead of writing it on a typewriter, yes, an actual typewriter, if you had a computer, which was much better because you didn't have to use like whiteout or backspacing or retype the whole page and everything, you know, if you had a computer, you could print it out on your Apple II or whatever in your dot matrix printer and you'd hand in the paper and you were one of the impressive students. Like here I am, I'm fancy. I have a computer. I'm handing in my paper that is printed on my printer on my my computer, right? If you laser printed something, it was like you had torn pages out of a book in the library. It's like, you didn't write this. This is, how how does this even exist? Because it's like a page from a book, like from the library, but it's got your words on it. Like, is it a practical joke? It didn't look like a different category of things. It didn't look like, oh, you had a better printer because everyone knows you can't print things like that. A better printer was the Apple Image Writer. Like that was a better dot matrix printer, and you could tell a difference of, I'm going to write from, I'm going to print from Mac Write on my Apple Image Writer. That looked better than the dot matrix printer. Laser printer looked like an alien had come down, and like it literally looked like like a piece of paper torn out of a book or a magazine. Yeah, but but it had your words on it, and it was like impossible. Now I didn't have a laser writer. Nobody had a laser writer, but no. Every once in a while, you know, if you had an uncle who had a laser runner, he could do that and print out a paper on it. It was like you were a published author. It was like, now I'm published because my serifs are 300 DPI. I feel like in a hundred years on a future upgrade, uh, Cyborg, Jason and Mike are going to be talking about how, yeah, remember the original 3D printers? They were really terrible. (laughs) Now we just (laughs) print our food. Remember stores? Wow. Was this, was this changeover like akin to something like Retina? Like the idea of like I've never seen something look so clear. Yeah, this is retina for paper. Like right. the dot, ma- like John was saying, the the dot matrix original. Like they had their own type, so you just send the text there, and it would be in whatever its font was would be. And maybe if you're lucky, it had two fonts, but it it was basically just you could see the dots, and it was in a in a grid. And then like the Apple, uh, like the Style Writer. Or you know that was um, the, the image writer. Or image, image writer. writer image writer. Because you, you'd go to MacWrite and you'd pick a different font, and I would always pick some hideous font, and I would print it. And teachers were blown away by it because it was not. It wasn't a typewriter because that like like the Courier typewriter font or whatever that was printed on the little metal heads, and it was 
wasn't a dot matrix. It was different fonts. I would have different size text for the title and my name and the body text. And yeah, it was so that amazing. Was the, that but was then, the big step forward was that you went from dot matrix, like all those all those things that I printed out on my Apple II, where it was just like letters on a, on a piece of paper with the dots. And then from the Mac, you could go and print these things where it would be like you could see the fonts, but the quality was still really terrible. And then you get to the, the laser writer, which had a, a certain number of built-in fonts. And it was suddenly you went from kind of like you could sort of see the ink smudges and the and all of that to immaculate like from like john said like from a book like you ripped a page out of a book in the library and so yes it was the retina of its day and the fact that not only could you do that but then everything got accurate so like this is how you know we we did our college newspaper on on laser writer essentially and you couldn't before you would have gone to a newspaper and had them do your you know uh, they would they would print it using their typesetter machine that cost a fortune, and all of a sudden you could just do it with this uh, laser printer for seven thousand dollars. Yeah, and it was unlike Retina because Retina was like it's not like there were professionals in the world that everyone knew. like everyone knows that the professional people already have phones that are Retina resolution, but regular people don't because in the printing world. We were all in a world where you'd get a magazine. You'd go get a magazine, and you'd look at the type in the magazine, and it was magazine type. Like, it was nice little serif fonts and, you know, 300 DPI or 600 DPI or whatever it was. That had existed for a long time. It's just that you couldn't do that at home. You can't You can't make your own magazine at home, That's right? That's madness. Uh, and, and then this was, the laser writer was a thing that everybody knew existed, that everyone was used to. It was like, and new, it was better than newsprint, because newsprint was awful and smudgy, right? Everyone knew magazines existed, and all of a sudden you could make one in your house, and that was what would blow people's mind because it, it seemed like an impossibility because it wasn't it wasn't a new innovation that everyone was coming along for the ride for. It was like taking something that was once the domain of super expensive things that nevertheless the entire world knew about because everyone could read a magazine. They just assumed they magically appeared, and then now suddenly you could make one yourself. It was amazing. Yeah, and it, it was part of a big. I mean, desktop publishing is what it was. The Max like strong like the stronghold for such a long time. They had all sorts of weird products. They had the two-page monochrome display and the portrait display, so you could lay out horizontal and and vertically oriented pages. We had those both at my college newspaper. Yep. Uh, All all sorts of of stuff that was really geared for professional designers, newspapers, magazines, print stuff. And and that, that industry, in a lot of ways, I think, helped helped Apple hang on there in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it would have been dead without that industry. For sure. No doubt. Weirdly, I think we've ended up speaking about the laser writer more than any other product on this list. So good good pick, Jason. I love all of you. Seems about right. <laughs> it also looked really cool. Again, Snow White design language. Look cool. All right. So the draft is now complete. The picks are done. But in standard Jason Snow draft rules, we get to have a few minutes where we can just we can just talk about a couple of other things that were on our lists that we didn't get to pick that that, that maybe nobody got to pick, um, and we'll get to do that just after this break, which is uh, what I'm going to talk about. Encapsula. Encapsula is helping to support this week's show. They have all of the website security tools and content delivery network stuff that you're going to need to make your website safer, faster, and more reliable. And it's so easy to get started. To activate Encapsula, you just make a small change to your DNS. It's ready to go whenever you are. You don't need to install any hardware or software. And once you do, you'll be up and running with the access to Encapsula's 30 data centers, which hold over 3 terabits of bandwidth, all on their global network. And what this will do is keep away any bad guys that are trying to attack your website. Denial-of-service attacks will never hit your servers of Encapsula, and they also cache your content and optimize connections using their powerful CDN, so everyone will get to your content 
lightning fast. To keep your mind at ease, you can also get a live traffic view of your site on Encapsula's dashboard with the ability to also create custom rules to meet your exact needs. As a listener of this show, you can get one whole month of service for free. All you need to do is go to Encapsula.com slash upgrade. That's I-N-C-A-P-S-U-L-A dot com slash upgrade. This is where you'll find out more about what Encapsula service is all about and claim your free month as well. Thank you so much to Encapsula for their continued support of this show and Relay FM. All right, John, I'm going to hand it back over to you to maybe pick one or two things to talk about real quick. That Bring you out your dead. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. More than one or two, but I will go quickly because I'm well versed Uh-oh. in the bringing out your dead and draft format. Um, <laughs> my number four pick was the Power Mac G5. It's another one of those computers like the Titanium that uh, seemed impossible. When the specs leaked, people thought it was impossible Like uh, because we had waited so long. Like The Mac had stagnated with the G4 and the f- slow front side bus, and this one just was such a huge leap. And you know, you kind of get these huge leaps if you let the line stagnate and be crappy for a while. Uh, but but again, uh, you know, because, because it had leaked, and Steve Jobs joked about it on stage, people didn't even believe the leak because it was so amazing. So that was an important computer. My 2008 Mac Pro that I've used for uh, almost a decade now, what a workhorse, what an incredibly flexible machine, sort of the peak of that tower design so flexible so powerful uh so well made such longevity i had the iphone 4s as my first non-mac pick um but we already went over that i the 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 4 line i picked the 4s just because i feel like the 4 was a little slow compared to the 4s the 4s was so much faster than it but also you know was in that same form factor i love that design and i think the 4s is the best version of that design um i put the 5 in a separate category i like the 4s way better with the more sandwichy thing uh, the iPad Pro 9.7 inch, the original one, kind of like 13 inch MacBook Air, one of those computers that there was nothing wrong with it. Like it, it, you know, you just recommend it wholeheartedly. It is great. It is it is thin. It is powerful. It has an amazing screen on it. Like you can use the the Apple Pencil with it. It was just I have one now. I love it. I feel like that is a really strong. You know, in the 9.7 line, it, it's going to be hard to beat that because it was just so. There was nothing bad about it. It was, it was amazing. Uh, the Apple Cinema Display, the 22-inch one with the little translucent <laughs> feet. I had that in my house as a review unit for a while. And people would come and visit my house and wouldn't know what category to put it in. Like, they would say, is that is that a TV? Because it's obviously not on a computer screen. Because A, computer screens are CRTs. And B, it's big like a TV, but it's skinny. And it looks weird. People, It didn't even read as a computer screen. It was so big. Um the 23 inch was actually a better version of that, but uh, that was a pretty amazing thing. And finally, Power Macintosh G3 Blue and White, oh, um, which man. was again mm. another big jump over its predecessors in terms of like the other ones were. There was the Power Macintosh G3 that was beige. Mm-hmm. All right, boy, that poor computer. Oh, like boy. you know, it had a little translucent handle on top, a uh, little translucent button on top of it, but the rest of it was boring. This thing had the door that opened up and all the guts laid out for you. A very interesting design, different than the current one where the door comes off and the stuff was on the inside. This, the stuff laid down, a lot of the stuff laid down. Um, it looked adorable. It was super fast. It was really cool. Uh, and uh, I really love that. It was the Yosemite case design. They reuse that name later. That's it for my bringing out the dead picks. Stephen, how many of those were on your uh, John Syracuse pick list? On my list, I had blue and white G3. I did have the Power Mac G5 on John's, but I had the quad-core uh, version. But uh, No, I'm going with the one that was the big jump over, like we're waiting for, yeah. we're waiting for it, a new computer. It had liquid cooling by slow. Mopar. What could go wrong? Yeah, no, those, <laughs> that, that would be on my list of the worst <laughs> Apple hardware. <laughs> yeah. I had a couple of unique things. I'll start with some of the, the more mainstream, maybe. Uh, I had the iMac G or sorry the iMac 
G5, sort of the same reason for the PowerMac G5 and some of these other machines. To put a G5 in, a, in an all-in-one seemed bananas to me at the time. You know, it was like two inches thick, I think. So, I mean, compared yeah. to the iMac now, it's chunky. But to have a G5 in an all-in-one just, just really, um, really was something. I uh, also have the uh, the series of uh, a series of weird '90s Macs, <laughs> the Macintosh TV, uh, and the 20th anniversary Mac. Both big collectors' items, of course. Both unique, both kind of terrible computers, mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> uh, show Apple trying to do do things that were uh, unique and and different. And and the Tam and the Macintosh TV, they didn't sell very well. They weren't ever really popular, but I, I like that Apple was trying something different, even if they were, were false directions. And uh, as far as like um, oddball stuff, I will throw in the uh, the Apple line of Quick Take cameras, specifically the Quick Take 200. It was the last one. kind of looks more like a digital camera today. as opposed to The Quick Take 100 series was like, skin, like a little sandwich with a lens on the front of it. You kind of held a sandwich up into the air. It was a thing picture. from uh, Star Wars that Luke looks through. Yeah, exa- exactly. Um, a, you know, a product that didn't survive the Steve Jobs transition in, in 97, uh, a whole like weird corner of, of Apple products didn't, didn't make that. But um, again, signaling where Apple would go in the future. Now cameras are a huge part of what they make with the iPhone and iPad. And they were doing it back then. Uh, although really it was a Kodak camera rebranded, but I'll give them points for credit. All right. So I'm going to, I've got three things. Uh, the first is my first Mac, the original polycarbonate Intel iMac. Um, I decided that I was going to buy a Mac and decided that the next Mac that came out would be the one that I would buy. And it turned out to be this one. So I consider myself pretty lucky there because I was just on the right wave because I was getting ready to buy a G5. Yeah, so, so the, 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 the G5 with eyesight was on sale like five months or something before this. So you, yeah, you, you really, uh, you, good timing there, buddy. I lucked out. I lucked out. Uh, the iPod video, because I have... Such good memories of this one because uh, I was maybe being a bit of a cheeky guy here at this point. So I explained, I got it for Christmas and I explained to my mom that uh, the iPod video had to have video on it to be useful. So I spent a few days putting video on the device and telling her how difficult it was and that it would take multiple days for the video to transfer. So uh, at night, I would unplug the iPod and I would watch episodes of TV shows like The Office and Family Guy under the covers with my iPod video. So you're the one, the one person who watched video on there. I watched, and then I ended up watching video podcasts on it for years. Here's the question. How close to your face did you hold it? incredibly close <laughs> it's like touching incredibly your nose incredibly close yeah it's it was almost like a cinema screen i held it so close but yeah I, I, <laughs> I, multiple days it took to to set that thing up before christmas uh and that was that was that was a fun memory for me and the last that i will pick is the 10.5 inch ipad pro the the new ipad pro because i actually think it's the best ipad ever made i think it is absolutely fantastic it has the best of everything that people are looking for with an ipad sort of size and power um i've been spending a lot more time with it over the last few weeks and that is an incredible machine and and i think it is it is the best ipad that they have ever made am i up you sure are 
Man, I'm bad at drafts, guys. <laughs> Not as bad as me, Alex. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also had the iPod video for the same reason as Mike, but also because this iPod actually had games on it. And there was yeah. only one game that was good. Oh, and it yeah. was, yeah, it was, it was like a rock band, uh, ripoff, uh, or a guitar hero ripoff. Um, actually, it might have been made by harmonics. Um, and you could listen to podcasts and play this terrible game. I listened to podcasts and listened to the music. I don't know why they let that be oh, a possibility gosh. uh <laughs> oh, like, breakout. breakout was a good game with the wheel wasn't it <laughs> yeah yeah i like that oh you're right you're right and maybe maybe peggle too might have been i i apologize ipod video you were really <laughs> underrated um I, I also have airpods because uh, oh, yes. ma- magical um the the imac dv which is the first imac i used to edit video mm, on which job. was like Wow. Okay, that defined my career. So that's cool. Um, the original iPod Shuffle, which just was a USB thumbstick, basically, uh, and I used it for everything. Um, and also the sports case that came with it, which had the like Johnny Ive secret orange around it, so you could like just it stood out just enough um, against the white. Um, and now that I think about it, this probably should have been my number one pick: the iPhone six and seven battery cases because the <laughs> despite <laughs> everyone made fun of that bulge um but you know we have camera bulges now why not have battery bulges um and i hate the design of these the the six going forward uh, iphone lines so much they're soap phones i've never dropped a phone until now uh, and this is this is the one thing that makes me able to to hold my phone comfortably uh and it's also made out of somehow a different plastic rubbery material than the other silicone cases and i don't know why they just don't make them all like this because this one doesn't degrade it doesn't get all linty um and it's it's just wonderful and perfect in every way in my opinion that's all i got all right uh i had a bunch of stuff that i felt like we were close enough that i didn't need to go there uh the first generation power book really did change the game for actually the entire computer industry it had the integrated point pointing device it was a trackball below the keyboard um they were a sensation in the early 90s it was a big deal that you could take a computer with you and that it was that that at the time thin and light and portable and i got a power book 160 in grad school and i loved it so much plus i could plug it into a color monitor at home uh which was pretty awesome too oh that was also like the iphone after that every single laptop looked like a keyboard pushed up towards the screen like it it totally defined the laptop not you know those are those it was a cool laptop it really was amazing like to this day i would i would argue like that that it still looks pretty great that original design and there's a reason it was a wild success yeah um the original ipod I, I was going to mention, uh, except no substitutes. I mean, yeah, I didn't have a, a door like on top of the Firewire plug and the Firewire plug was huge, <laughs> but like it was a huge deal. And it, you know, with the stainless steel back and the click wheel front uh, and the wheel really spun, it was not a fake click wheel. It was actually a circular piece of plastic that you had to spin. It spun right off the device eventually. Uh, eventually it would. <laughs> oh, yes. And you just pop it right back on, though. It would just go right back on. Trust me. Um, I love the the ipod shuffle when it turned into the clip 
Um, I didn't like the stick of gum one so much as the clip version. I thought that was a brilliant piece of design. Um, I loved those and uh, in their little bright colors, and you could just clip it onto your shirt and mow the lawn or whatever. Uh, I think the I love the original iPhone design. I've written many thousands of words about how great that was. I mentioned the iPhone five, and then the five K iMac. I think is a spectacular computer. The fact that Apple was finally able to mm. make a computer with Retina at a giant desktop size and with incredible power inside of it. And I'm talking to you from one right now and it's great. So those, those are my, Oh, and uh, I, I neglected to mention my other out, out, if the laser writer hadn't been the direction I was going to go, I was going to go with that machine they make that sucks off the iPhone screen in the back of the Apple store so they can replace <laughs> your screen right in there. That's oh, an amazing yeah. piece of Apple hardware too. Good. Yeah. I thought you were going to say iPod Hi-Fi, and I'm surprised nobody, <laughs> I'm surprised nobody picked the Newton. No, I mean, I had a Newton I'm on not. my desk right here, but I didn't pick it either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, the story of the Newton's all. life. I, yeah. I didn't pick it. Yep. And we all have Apple Watches on, and no one picked that either. So yeah, well, you know, oh, that's telling. Well, there's, only, there's only so many picks, you know. <laughs> there's only yeah three yeah. rounds. That's all you got. All right. So at this point, we're going to say goodbye to Stephen and Alex, um, as me and Jason need to go to movie class with John Syracuse, uh, which we're going to do in a moment. So I just want to uh, thank you both for joining us, uh, Stephen. Where should people go to find out more about the work that you do? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at ISMH and my writing at 512pixels.net. And I do a bunch of shows here on Relay. And what about you, Alex? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at AlexCox, spelled C-O-X, um, and DoBuyFriday.com, which is a show I do with my boss, Max Temkin, and Merlin Mann of the Internet. Uh, and uh, on, at RoboWisdom.fm, which is a show about robots and isms and technology and a bunch of weird stuff with my friend Savannah Million. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Thank you. And congratulations, Mike, on seeing the correct version of Blade Runner. Oh, oh boy. Oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So just after this break, we're going to talk about Blade Runner final cut but before we do let me take a moment to talk about our final sponsor for this week's episode and that is mac weldon they make the most comfortable underwear socks shirts undershirts hoodies and sweatpants that you're ever gonna wear frankly mac weldon is better than whatever you're wearing because they care about this stuff obsessively they're so confident that they're gonna make stuff that you love they have a no questions asked return policy mac weldon's things are so comfortable they think about everything, right? They don't just give you a great shopping experience. They also use premium fabrics and they have their meticulous attention to detail to make sure that what you're going to be putting on your body is great for whatever you want to do, whether it's working out, going to work, traveling. No matter what it is, Mack Weldon stuff performs fantastically. I am in the US right now, so I've taken advantage of this, and I have a whole huge package of MacWalden clothing for me here, and I'm very excited to be having more MacWalden clothes in my life, including some of their lounge shorts and uh, uh, many more undershorts, which is a term that I found out recently when looking at doing uh, laundry in the US. Undershorts seems to be the way that uh, people refer to pants or what i would call pants and i guess you would call boxes in a in a more discreet manner which i found really funny anyway mac weldon have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial this is some cool science stuff and i have to say like i i love this stuff it is absolutely fantastic listeners of this show can get 20 percent off at MacWeldon.com. that's m-a-c-k-w-e-l-d-o-n.com you get 20 percent off when you use the code upgrade thank you so much to mac weldon for their support of this show and relay fm Okay, so 
couple of months ago, uh, me and Jason watched Blade Runner for Mike at the Movies because whilst Jason wasn't a huge fan of the movie, I wanted to see it. I felt like it was an important one to see because uh, it has a, a lot of uh, geek cred. Neither of us were really crazy about the movie. I, I don't think that we necessarily, well, I'll speak for myself, I don't think we necessarily disliked it, but it, it didn't sit high up in the overall ranking uh, of Mike at the Movies movies. John Syracuse heard this um, and demanded that we watch the final cut and talk about it with him. So, John... Why are we doing this? I'm not so sure I demanded it. In fact, that, I remember mm. fearing, I remember being afraid that you guys were going to watch Blade <laughs> Runner and like it the movies, because like Jason doesn't really like it that much, and you have weird taste in movies and are so young and impressionable, and I didn't, it just didn't seem hey. like it was going to be the, one of those ones where you're like, uh, you know, dumping on a movie that I like, essentially. But but I was pleasantly surprised that both of you seemed pretty even-keeled about the movie, even though neither one of you were, were big fans. But... You did watch the theatrical release, which I think was Mike's sort of misguided notion that he wants to watch like the one that everybody saw. Right. Nobody saw yeah. the theatrical release because when it was in theaters, nobody went to see it because it was not a successful movie. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, I, I feel like the one that has all the cachet, well, I guess the theatrical one it does in terms of like set design or whatever, but like that this is one of the first movies where it was really important to the biggest fans of the movies that you watch a different cut. Like I, this obviously wasn't the first director's cut, but it was sort of the most prominent director's cut among geeks that, you know, do you know a movie that has a theatrical release and a director's cut? And it's like, oh yeah, Blade Runner. And of course you have to watch a director's cut of Blade Runner. That was, that was the really important thing to do. Um, I think the director's cut was like the 10 year anniversary of the movie or whatever, but it's one of those movies that, you know, it's a cult classic and it, it was not, it was not successful in its release, but it just grew in stature over the years. It became clear all the things that all the other movies that it had influenced. Um, so, yes, you got out of the way. You watch a theatrical one. But I think it is important to watch the one that everybody loves, essentially. The one that when people say, oh, Blade Runner, I love that movie. They're not talking about, for the most part, the theatrical release. They're talking about this other one. Um, and I guess you got the authentic experience of watching a theatrical one. And now you have the experience of watching what I think is the better, one, one of the better cuts. And seeing <laughs> the movie that everybody is raving about, which is... Uh, I feel like different in two very important ways than the theatrical. So I want to talk about the differences and then maybe we can talk about just the movie itself and, and a little bit about why you love it, John. But I want to make sure that I'm following this correctly. So obviously the big, uh, what I assume is the biggest difference is the end, right? There's no happy ending. There's no driving off, which is just, which I really didn't like in the original. Yeah. Like it felt so strange and out of place, right? Like we're driving down this road. It's literally stuff shot for another movie. Yeah. Yeah. The two, do you want me, that's not the, one of the two big differences that I was referring to. Do you want me to tell you what they are or should you? Yeah. It? Tell me what they are. Tell me what they are. So, I mean, you know, this one, I'm sure you're going to get to it next. There's no voiceover, right? Yeah. 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 So that's, that's the, obviously the most prominent one because the voiceover is so, so integral to the first one. Right. Yeah, I didn't miss it either, right? Like, I, yeah. you know, I mean, I have already seen the movie, so obviously it helps me understand what's going on. Because, like, I do find this to be a very confusing movie. Like, the story is, I think, difficult to follow at points, especially, like, in the first 30 minutes. Um, 
but I don't know if the voiceover particularly helps with that. You've got a little bit of Lex Friedman disease where you find movies confusing just inherently. <sighs> I feel like there should be some remedial course for you and Lex to just like following along with the plot of movies. I have to admit that actually in this version, um, which I'm going to just come out and say is the most I have enjoyed watching Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> the uh, I think the uh, plot is fairly straightforward. Like I, I didn't have, I, I think it's maybe it's because I've seen it enough times now that I know what to look for, but it's like literally there are these escaped replicants and they are trying to find a way to extend their lives. And there's a guy who's going to kill them. And that's kind of it is he's methodically chasing them down and they're methodically doing their thing. And that's kind of it. Yeah. But Mike, get, Mike gets hung up on the details that you want to understand. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want something to be shown and not explained because it's like, is, is, I think it's like the, not knowing what's important, not knowing what what's not important, or wanting every wanting to understand everything you see and not allowing it to just be like just just accept it that people have umbrellas with light up handles. Just accept it. Like just it's not important to the movie. Just move on. I know this frustrates you. I know this frustrates you. But when like when I say confusing, like the plot of the movie is fine, but like I have questions about the world. And, and, oh sure. And that, that's important to me, right? Like the world building thing is important. Why is it raining so much in Los Angeles? Yeah. <laughs> Just all these things about like, you know, wh- who is Tyrell? What, why does you know, like robots seem to be outlawed? And so I, I think this is kind of what people, when they talk about like that, a larger world is hinted at within a movie. They said that about a lot of things where you'll see a movie and then it'll have a story in a world, but then people will say uh, also for books, they'd be like, but, but the world is so rich. You see hints of such a, a larger world that there could be other stories in this world behind it. Like, and what most people describe as an attractive quality, hinting at a larger world beyond the realm of the story, right? You, uh, describe as confusion in that there is a larger world behind the story that I don't know anything about. And you find that unsettling rather than enticing. Yeah. Well, okay, I would say there's a mix of it, like with some movies. Like I wouldn't say that I, I I wouldn't say that like I only find it that way, but like I in this movie, I feel like there are just questions that I have which I I, do, I can't come to understand and it frustrates me. Like uh, you know, about the replicants and like they seem to be like illegal, but yet there's a man that everybody knows makes them. Like it's just that I have just these these hang-ups about this movie which I sh- struggle to get my head around i think i can help you with some of those because they are they are in the movie if you've seen it uh, enough times or once and pay yeah. a lot of attention um the second hey. so that's, that's so that's one one is voiceover yeah and the second most mm-hmm. important change and, and I, by the way before we get into more of these details is that i recommended the final cut just because it's the one i had seen the most recently if I don't know the difference between the final cut and the director's cut. I tried to Google it to see like I what the significant differences there, are. There are not a lot of significant differences. Uh, Ridley Scott was approved the director's cut, but he actually was unhappy with some things, and they finally budgeted for him to go in and make some of the changes. But they're pretty pretty minor timing yeah, things. Like, like cleaning, and, cleaning up special effects. Yeah, and, and some and, alter- you know, the, 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 the unicorn dream is extended. Um, uh, Pris pulls on his nose when she's attacking him, which doesn't happen yeah. in the director's cut, but it's not, it's not huge. Does he feel the need to put that in? Like it's so well, strange to me. Right, so yeah, well, that's pulling. what I'm saying. Like, and again, the only reason I recommended the final cut instead of a director's cut was just because I had seen it most recently. And when I watched, it the looks final way cut, better. It looks yeah, way. When I better. watched the final cut, my impression was uh, I didn't notice any differences from the director's cut upon watching the final cut, and it looked really good. Yeah. So that's my go-to mm-hmm. now, yeah. basically. All right, but but the second difference, the second difference, you got no voiceover, and the second difference is that the final cut and the director cut 
are unambiguous about the fact that Deckard is a replicant. That is super important. It's not that there's a happy ending or a sad ending. It's that the whole point of the movie, like it colors the whole movie backwards and forwards, like the end of The Sixth Sense, right? That it ripples backwards through the whole movie. It's a different movie when it is not clear that Deckard is a replicant. Uh, it's not. I don't, I don't think it's even hinted at in a theatrical one. It's just not like that's a different movie. I like the movie where he's a replicant. That is an entirely different movie. It colors the whole movie for me. It's not just like happy ending versus sad ending. And so those two things, the voiceover, which I found cloying and his performance really stilted, and I think is totally unnecessary and takes away from the things I like about the movie, and the fact that Deckard is a replicant. Those are the two biggies for me. So I definitely felt that more, but like I was wondering if. I felt that way because I'd found out afterwards, right, about like, the, what, how it's intended. Like, what are the hints? Like, I mean, I know that there seem when I'm watching the movie, it feels that way, but I'm not sure what the specifics are, which make it clear that he is one. I was going to say also for as background here, um, Harrison Ford uh felt felt and i think feels that deckard is not a replicant the screenwriter wanted it to be an open question but ridley scott prefers that deckard is a replicant so he in making his version of the movie and his 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 final cut he's amped that part up i i am not i'm a dissenter on deckard being a replicant i think that one of the themes is uh affinity with the replicants and whether they're human or not and whether they're sentient or not and what that means and the questioning ourselves as the sort of viewpoint of Deckard and whether it matters and is he human or not I think is part of I I, I really like the ambiguity of it and so I'm not I I actually don't believe that it is definitive and I I refuse to go down that route I think it's an open question it's definitive I feel like in the the director and final cut but like it's it's important for us all it's important that the writer uh wanted it to be ambiguous because that means unlike harrison ford the writer put stuff in the movie in that direction yeah. even a theatrical cut right so so it's not like a retro you know like uh what do you call it uh retroactive continuity. Retcon, yeah there you go um where you take a movie that was made one way and you pretend it's something different in the movie are the important themes uh, that that lay the groundwork for this right you've got Deckard testing, uh, what's her name? Sean Young. Or is that it, her name? Yeah, yeah. Sean Young. Um, what's her name in the movie? Rachel? Rachel. Um, yeah. You've got that test. You've got the fact, you've got after the fact, like the fact that she's being tested and she doesn't, know, how can she not know what she is? She doesn't know what she is, right? That we don't, we as the audience don't know uh, when the test begins, but we eventually figure it out and then he figures it out, right? And uh, Jason's right that one of the major themes of the movie is like the replicants. Do we, uh, can we relate to them? Are you know? Are we different from them because they're human? Uh, you know, like just the the affinity between like, oh, do you really separate yourself so much from these from these replicants? Are they so different just because they were made? Are they really different than us? Can we can we feel kinship with them in any way? And that's in the movie whether Billy Deckard's a replicant or not. The the fact that you have that scene early where both the audience and Harrison Ford are fooled is the eventual thing that leads you to. The ending thing where, okay, well, how, how can she not know what she is? How can Deckard not know what he is? Um, and his affinity for the replicants, you know, it, it turns on, like, affinity for yourself. Like, it's the ultimate one. That's exactly. why it works on the audience. Like, what if you are a replicant? What, what if it's like, oh, now suddenly, it, you know, in the same way that you, you, it's suddenly easy to have empathy with the replicants when you realize that you're one. And the whole time, you felt like a person, a legitimate person. You never questioned it. And what if we were to tell you that you are a replicant, too? Um and what makes it definitive in the director's cut and in the final cut is the unicorn dream. Um, 
so the fact that like you know when rachel comes and she's insistent that she's real that she had parents and she has memories and whatever and deckard's like let me you know rattles off a bunch of stuff she never told anybody he's like they're they're tyrell's niece's memories like yeah deckard knows them it's like you think they feel like they're your memories but they're not like i i know about them let me rattle them off to you right so the unicorn dream we see Deckard have, where he's like drunk at his piano or whatever and falls asleep and he dreams about a unicorn. He's dreaming about Ridley Scott's Legend, which is a really weird movie that you might want to watch, uh, but is not as good as Blade Runner. Um, <laughs> uh, unicorn, uh, you know, running through the fields or whatever. Um, and what's his name? Edward uh, James Olmos, uh, who's uh, Gaff, Adama, I think. Yeah, yeah, Adama from Battlestar uh, is doing little origami things all the time. He drops off a little origami uh unicorn. unicorn deckard never told him about his unicorn dreams how would he know about deckard's unicorn dreams the same way that deckard knows about her weird dreams and the spider and all the other stuff or whatever because they were implanted because he's a replicant now it could be 100 percent coincidence that he dreams about a unicorn and that this guy just happens to do unicorn origami but that is amazing coincidence there's a much simpler explanation and that's why it's kind of the nail nailing this down is you are a replicant here you know we know that you're a replicant you didn't know until now uh and i'm being nice and letting you guys go free for whatever you know will happen after that elevator door closes we don't know so it's an ambiguous ending not a sad ending but it's not a, you know a happy ending uh but deckard deckard now realizes that he, he sees the unicorn he looks at it he picks it up he has that realization and then they're just out of there yeah do we know yet how this is working in the sequel the Blade Runner 2049. Oh, like, let's, let's not think about it. Yeah, well, I do. I, I, I have to admit that was one of the things that always confused me is if they do a sequel that's set with an aging Harrison Ford, then that suggests that, they, that they're making a statement either that he is a replicant that ages or he wasn't a replicant after all. But I, I I'm, yeah, I feel like that is let's not let sequels affect talk about retroactive continuity affect your view of the existing movie so i want to say um the ending always seemed weird to me and um it actually reminded me about how they did a cut of brazil that has a weird love conquers all i think they call it ending it's like what are you doing uh did you see the movie and so i really like how this ends with them getting into the elevator i don't think yeah, I, I guess I, I saw the director's cut at one point, so I've seen I've seen this, but my memory of it, all my memories of Blade Runner are of the original, um, because I saw that several times. And I, I have to say it, I love having no voiceovers. It feels like a very different movie, um, and I get why some people like the voiceover, because it gives it that kind of film noir feel. But I gotta say, um, I, I like it without, because then it feels really weird and atmospheric and you have to figure it mm-hmm. out and it feels more like a science fiction movie and it feels more about the the images because let's let's be honest here this movie is more notable because of how it looks than the words people say in it there are some great words in it some memorable words some things i quote all the time but um I think the voiceover makes it seem like even more like this is a movie really about me telling you things about this world. And it's totally not. It's about showing me the world and letting me see these visions of these huge billboards that are animated for different products and things that I don't even understand what they're advertising. And the the little air cars moving around, which are great. The fact that Tyrell Corporation is like a like a big pyramid, basically. It's this ridiculous monstrosity. But then at ground level, everything is dirty and and mixed 
mixed up like that's what it's about so i'm i'm actually really happy that the voiceover is gone i like it better without i think it's a much better movie without it there and it looked so great so um like i said i enjoyed it a whole lot more even though i'm one of those people who thinks that you still have to do a little bit of work to prove uh you know if deckard's a replicant why other things happen in the movie and likewise you could probably do a little bit work to explain why maybe that unicorn doesn't mean what what it actually means um it's ambiguous enough that i'm happy to embrace the ambiguity i actually prefer it ambiguous because then you know it's making the point that um if you it's the point of deckard which is if you don't even know about your own humanity and yet you're judging them for theirs um i guess the implication too john correct me if i'm wrong is that is that deckard and certainly rachel are like next gen replicants they're nexus seven right yeah well that, that's the whole point they're nexus they're nexus seven well here's rachel is nexus seven that's why she doesn't know because it's a new thing they're trying giving them memories and backstories and not letting them know right i always assume that deckard was like nexus eight or whatever uh-huh. right that like to get the other replicants you need the best replicant like so he's either nexus seven or nexus eight yeah and maybe right? that's maybe that's, that's why he's different and why he's more human-like and um you know and potentially they'll retcon it that way for the right. sequel well, too. they don't have to retcon it because like in the theatrical release you remember how the theatrical release ends like so they know you know uh, ray uh roy batty and and Hall's crew like for your lifespan right yeah and you mm-hmm. know Nexus Sevens are different, certainly different because Rachel doesn't even know what she is, right? So she's very different. And if he's Nexus Seven or Nexus Eight, when they go off with the on the car driving down the green road with the weird ending and the voiceover, the voiceover says basically says, I don't know long how long we have. Um, you know, I think he says something like, God do any of us know or something right. like that. Like idea like they don't know what they're not they might have four year lifespans or they might not. And the same thing with uh with uh, uh you know, Edward James Almost. What's his what's his character's name? I'm so bad with character names. Gaff. Gaff says it's too it's too bad she won't live, but then again who does? Then again who does? Right, well nobody is basically saying nobody lives forever, right? You're all gonna die, you just don't know when. Exactly. So I feel like both versions of the movie leave it completely open as to what is the lifespan of Rachel and uh and Deckard. Deckard. We have we have no idea. So if they want them, and the fact that they age, again, it's clear that there is a biological component to them. Like, I design your eyes, and he's got these squishy eyeballs and everything. That All that stuff's got to age, right? Like, they're not, they're not Terminators inside I there. noticed this time they talk about, I mean, he's a DNA artist, and they talk about the cells. So these are, these are um, organic creatures, at least in part, right? They're not, they're, they're artificial, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're uh, that they've got metal parts. In fact, they may not. Right. They and may and be they're like entirely... they're stronger and smarter right. in the same way a person could be stronger because yeah. you genetically designed them. It's like the snake. It's like a real snake, but it's got little. Which is why they're yeah. not a robot. Yes, but that's a different show. If if Decker is a more advanced version of the Nexus line, why did they make him weaker? So is he weaker? That's the question. I mean, he, he does yeah, hold on to the edge of a building with like three fingers. by all of the Nexus 6s, right? Uh, like some just... of that, yeah, right. So some of that is if you don't know you're a replicant, you're running an abject fear because you're not going to go toe-to-toe with them because you have the expectation that they can destroy you. But if we look at what actually happens in the movie, he never like tries to go toe-to-toe and fight him. He gets his hand pulled through a wall and his finger's broken, but you know anybody can break your fingers. Uh, and how did, Could he stop them from breaking his fingers? Well, probably not with his hand through a wall. He does hold on to the edge of a building by like three fingers, which is in the rain, mm-hmm. which is a thing a real person could not do. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like 
Dumbo's feather. If you had told him, by the way, you're a replicant and you're stronger, like fight them. And the second thing is maybe he's not stronger. Maybe part of the Nexus 7 and possibly Nexus 8 lines is you want them to think they're human. Closer, and if you made them super strong, yeah. it would it would okay. be a giveaway. Also, the, the, the Nexus uh, replicants that, that they're hunting are from off world. And, and the imp- there's a strong suggestion that they're, they've been engineered for certain jobs. Like Roy is a fighter. Uh, That's what he's yeah. for. Uh, okay. So, of course, he's going to be strong. That doesn't and explain why the prostitute would be super strong. It's it's true. But, you know. It's true. Um, I, I was I was going to get there, but yeah. So there, there's a question like, do they make them more robust for the off-world colonies? I want to ask that. I think one of the fascinating things about this is there are the ads for go to the off-world colonies, like they're trying to get people to to leave Earth. And I wonder, does that mean they want people off of Earth? Does that mean the off-world colonies are really bad and they need more people on them? But they, you know, we don't really know anything about. I, I think it means the off-world colonies are really expensive and everybody who's down there in the muck in Los Angeles would love to go to the off-world colonies, but they can't afford it. In the same way you see like billboards for go to Hawaii or have a tropical vacation. Yeah, sure. We don't love to have a tropical vacation, but it costs too much money. If you had enough money to get off of this crap hole that is the Earth, you would go presumably to the off-world colonies assuming the advertising could be deleted we don't know enough about the universe to know are the off-world colonies actually good or are they crap and they're trying to entice you to go there to be slave labor and that's what fascinates me about it yeah there's the conversation between pris and sebastian right where like it seems like he's not allowed because he has that sickness that makes him look old right like she's like why aren't you there is it because of the disease or whatever so like i always got the impression that it was like earth is ruined so we had to go and make nicer places to live. Like right. that's how I always yeah. have viewed it, right? Because he wasn't allowed because there's something wrong with him, right? But it's never said. It's only hinted at, which I I kind of love mm-hmm. that you have to fill in the get. You have to guess about what this world is like, and, and it's communicated by advertising, like oppressive advertising. That again, I like the idea that these giant billboards with these attractive looking people, you know, with all the, the their geisha makeup and all this other stuff, like, and you're just in this presumably acid rain in this crappy yeah. dark city, yeah. right? eating noodles at the bar like but always these ads are in your face constantly letting you know what it is that you you can't have nailed it is this movie colored differently uh it looks then then the theatrical it, it cut, looks like the, the, yeah. they did some color timing on it that it, that it's i yeah. saw some side by sides where even from the director's cut that they've done some work to get the it looks like it's been maybe regraded um not i think i think more just to get it be consistent because modern technology lets them do that i'm not sure it was like let's change it to look different so much as like ridley scott said i know how how we make movies now can we get this to be all uniform and so it is well and also like it's a very dark movie right and it's actually very difficult to make a dark movie because especially when you were doing on film like this was it's a fine line between this is a dark scene and i can't see anything Right. And so digitally, it's much easier nowadays and they can take the film and try to tweak it. So the scene like you want the blacks to be inky black, but you want to be able to see what the hell is going on. And if if there's any difference, I imagine the original one, the blacks weren't quite inky because if they made them inky, everything else in the scene would be all blacked out, too. And you wouldn't be able to see anything. And now digitally, you can, you know, adjust the curves and get it just the way you want it. I still don't like the last part of the movie. I don't. You don't like like the the, the confrontation, uh, the the running around? No. No, the running around, the screaming, the howling. Um, I I don't I don't like the it. The Daryl Hannah thing is really unpleasant. I I just yeah, and it's and it's but it's purposefully unpleasant. And when he kills her, and it's slow, and he has to like keep shooting her because she's writhing and and, and she screams and and she flails around. This is one of the things she flails around. I mean, kind of like a machine. Yes, 
you know, yeah. like in like forcefully and in a way that you would think a, a human wouldn't, which is at odds with the, the biological, supposed biological nature of it. But that, that's part, I think that's part of this movie. Is there's a lot of things that are that are off putting, and the final the final scene and the shooting and all that stuff, on all the violent parts, are a great contrast to the rest of the movie, especially without the voiceover, which not only is slow, but Without the voiceover, there are long stretches where nobody says anything, yeah. where there's no dialogue at all. And, you know, it's not just like that it gives you more time to look at the scenery. It's that the movie slows down even more. Like, you know, the, one of the things I like about the movie is it sort of lulls you into this Zen state where you're not like, come on, come on, what's the next plot point? Um, and you get into that state and then they, they throw in like a scene with, a, you know, the woman running through the glass or some violence. The violence stands out more in contrast to the rest of the movie where everything is slow and i, I think it works yeah they're, they're just i just got just the howling i can't yeah like it it just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me and i know that so one of the reasons we're doing this is because me and john were talking about this at wwdc right and you said to me that like uh, the howling is meant to show like a primal thing right it's why he takes all of his clothes off and he's howling because he's 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 on the way out right like he's dying he's becoming more primal he's also kind of a predator hunting his prey and the idea there that the yep. replicants are what's next and that the humans are going to be you know eaten by the replicants i think and, and he wants to be scary this is what it's like it's to true. live in fear right he wants to he wants to scare deckard and he's going a little bit nuts towards the end of it. it's kind of like if you know if you had 24 hours to live what would you do so you know go crazy right so he's 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 enacting revenge he's he's teaching a lesson <laughs> so. like he could kill that's the other thing that mike was confused about i think when we talked about it was that could he have killed deckard presumably yes like at many points he could have killed him. he's toying with him He's like, it's the reason he leaves him alive. He, why didn't you, you know, you could have killed Decker, but you didn't. You saved him. You picked him back up onto the roof and you gave your little speech and everything, right? He's not trying to kill him. He wants him to see what it's like to live in fear and he wants to go out with a bang, uh, which he essentially does. Why, though? Uh, one scene that, that I think in 1982 or whenever this, when was this movie made? 1982, that you can you get away with that from 2017 made me very uncomfortable is uh rachel wants to leave deckard's apartment and he blocks her and pushes mm-hmm. her back yeah, like and, fo- and forces nope. himself on her and you know what it was intended to be oh this is this she's reluctant and he's forcing things and you know it was meant to be read a certain way that is not um not how it can be read now and i find that I'd find that unpleasant. So that was a very difficult scene to watch. If they made it today, they could make it exactly the same way. But the lesson would be that Deckard's not the greatest guy, right? Whereas before, the lesson was supposed to be that Deckard is a man's man. Yeah, right? and, so he's, and different... he's, he just needs to show her that it's okay to to love him by telling right. by by barring the door and telling her what to say to him. Like right, which uh, is which is a fine dynamic to have in the scene in terms of like. Uh, she's afraid and he doesn't want her to be afraid. The way to do it is not to physically assault her, right? Yeah. So, that, like, in a modern movie, if they were trying to have that outcome of the scene, she's afraid of her feelings for him, they would talk about it. And he would, he would say, you know, they have that scene in a million movies. Like, you know, you, I know you have feelings for me, but you're afraid of them. Let me convince you that you should give in to them, right? Not by physically restraining you, yeah. but using my mouth words. Yeah, so that, that, does, that doesn't, uh, I'm going to say that doesn't hold up. It's like, I'm going to say that doesn't, convey the thing that the movie makers wanted to convey exactly right the way you know we've changed right but if you read it if you say okay well ignore that and just read it in the modern sense it just makes deckard a less likable person but it's entirely realistic because dynamics like that happened all the time because people are bad sure it's just that the movie doesn't <laughs> yeah. want us to judge him that way and that's the that's yeah. where you get that 
that uh, dissonance happening. So that was yeah. That was and tough. he could have he could have like gone. I mean, they, that's another scene that they could have changed or edited in a different way. But uh, either the people making the movie still think that it's a manly man thing to do. Or they didn't want to go like uh, Steven Spielberg, E.T. Walkie Talkie, and say, "Look, this is the movie. This is the movie we made. That's it. These were the people that we were. This is the time." You know, Roger Ebert it. did a, a great movies about this movie, um, and he he was always um, not a not a huge fan. I think his feelings about it are kind of like mine, which is it is brilliant and it needs to be considered part of the canon. But um, you know, I even Harrison Ford has said he he doesn't find it. He's never really warmed to it. He thinks it's beautiful, but that you know it's it, 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 making an emotional connection it's not that kind of movie and i, I think that's true but I, I ebert wrote that th- this is very just deliberately not george lucasing this movie right it's just like this is the movie they made and it just it looks better but it's the, it's still not any different uh, more or less from the movie that that he wanted to make the effects got cleaned up but there's they're, they're the same effects they're not new effects and they did a couple of digital things where they had like a continuity problem but they didn't add anything to the scene they more like wiped some things out that were wrong to just make it cleaner and so yeah you leave that scene in and it's just this is what that's the scene that's in the movie in 1982 and and yes we don't think that way now and that's that's just part of uh the part of the thing i wanted to also mention rutger hauer i you know i quote that speech of his all the time and john you believe it or not i i mostly get it right it's one of those speeches that i actually get right because i i'm really bad at quoting speeches from movies um this time what i noticed is the choices he makes as an actor are really interesting like the way he reads those lines because those lines are really cool you know the whole thing i i've i've seen i've seen things you people wouldn't believe you know the whole thing and the way and he knows he's winding down and he this is his last statement before he dies and yet the way he the way he says those lines are like every line is said in an interesting way and uh and it's just it's a really cool speech but the performance is so weird and and i think inhuman in some ways and superhuman like like incredibly human in other ways and it's just like it's a really great um classic movie moment it's one of my favorite speeches in any movie is that um is that Rutger Hauer speech at the end right before Roy dies it's great yeah just like the way he says tears in rain is so strange I, it is <laughs> like like the way he says the word rain, it's like there's more letters in it than there really is. It's very interesting. He's got the little ticks and the pauses. I mean, because yeah. he is, he's dying. He's winding right? down. So, yeah. 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 And so hearing you guys talk about this on, on the earlier episode, you know, and, and hearing Jason complain about it over the years and everything, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, you know, this is not my world's favorite movie, but I always liked it. But hearing everybody say, oh, it's boring, it's long, it's weird, I kind of like started getting bored. I'm like, yeah, well, it's not, it's not paced the way normal people want it to be, and it's not that great. But I have to tell you, rewatching it again for this podcast, I rewatch it again. I'm like, you know what? This is a fantastic movie. Like, I, <laughs> I understand all, all the, all the problems and the reason people don't like it. Uh, I, you know, I can see why they don't like it, but, I overall like I watched it again and I was surprised by how much I still like it right so that that was my impression of watching it again and the other thing I, I think about this a lot is despite basically the majority of the movie like the, especially the long middle part and especially without the voiceover where people fall asleep you know Jason falls asleep on his couch and everything <laughs> uh, the opening scene to this movie with the interrogation is one of the best opening scenes of any movie ever I feel like because like, it's so weird. Yeah, the the dialogue is so smart and and snappy, and there's so much tension, and it establishes the stakes and the world. 
I really feel like this movie doesn't because this movie is not about snappy dialogue. Like there's hardly any dialogue in it. And dialogue later in the movie starts to get weird and slow. And the people having conversations are either replicants or Sebastian, who's weird, or Tyrell, who's, who's weird. Um, but there are I feel like the writing on this, there are some great scenes. The opening interview scene, the final speech at the end, uh, you know, uh, Tyrell, his, his little discussion with, with Roy, we made you as well as oh, we could. Oh, man, that is, yeah. And that that's another director's cut change where the dialogue, he says, I want more life father now, which is how it should have always been. It's a much better uh, line that way. But that whole conversation where Tyrell is legitimately saying, you know, we made you better. You, Your life is shorter, but you burn brighter. And and there's some tenderness there right before Roy squeezes his yeah, head into pulp. Before he gets a skull crush. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So th- anyway, that's that's what I feel like because that's not what this movie is about. It doesn't get credit for those parts of it. And I feel like there's some some of the best writing, like like the speech at the end, like not just for the performance, but uh, in so many movies that are trying to be like profound sci-fi type movies, uh, they either go too abstract where it's just like, uh, you know, word salad that's supposed to mean something and it gets by with like the score and, and the effect or too on the nose. And I feel like this all the, the those the good dialogue scenes uh strike a balance between let me be completely on the nose and explain to you in dummy terms exactly what's going on here and let me be artful because the tears and rain speech explains it well enough that anybody watching it understands what's going on there what is he saying about his life what is he trying to tell deckard right but it is also artful and the same thing with the with the interrogation scene where they don't tell you, you know, he's undergoing this test. Why are they asking him these questions? You don't know why he's asking these questions. It's a really good, snappy back and forth. Lots of tension ending in him getting shot. They really should have checked him for guns before he went into the interview. Um, and magically being thrown back from the table, which makes no sense. Uh, but there's a reason those scenes are famous. There's a reason, you know, like the turtle wire and you flipping it over. You know, yeah. You, you know, the tortoise, what, you know what a turtle is? Same thing. And the smoking, oh God, you got to love the smoking. Like, it's just, we haven't figured that it's out. It's not yet. even like what smoking actually looks like. It's like yeah, very no, it's purposefully these huge puffs of smoke with the light. They've got that horizontal, mm-hmm. like the sunlight coming in the room. So it's all meant to just make it, again, kind of noirish and super weird where they want it to fill the room and so that you can see the light filtered through it. And it's all very st- stylized yeah the pacing where he's asking questions or whatever and he just plows forward and making him ask or whatever and then after he plows forward he says an answer to your query they're written down for me because he had asked earlier about right. do you make up these questions or like oh, i love that just scene. being helpful I love it that guy helpful guy and then he, he, he is dead <laughs> let me tell you about my mother like what i like about those questions is that they'd make me feel uncomfortable watching mm-hmm. them right because they're just like what is this like weird nonsense that's what this movie is like ultimately i think what's cool about this movie and what's great about this movie is that's what it is it's all about it's set up as being humans and replicants and we got to find the replicants and kill them and we don't even call them kill them we just retire them but in the end what it's really talking about is people right it it, it is the replicants are just our story at a different pace the whole point of of roy's speech at the end is he's just talking about mortality he's not talking about being a robot he's talking about being a person who has collected memories through their lives and at the end they realize that they die and all of his experiences will be lost like tears and rain and that's it and he's not talking about it because he's a robot man he's talking about life and death and this whole movie you know that's the trick of it is it's wrapped this whole thing about you know this future dystopia kind of looking place and these robots that we're after and all of that and in the end you know it it, that's not what it's about it's about looking at them and not seeing ourselves and i think like also with the decorative replicant angle 
It's about the value of your own life to yourself. Is that based on an externality? Is it based on your understanding that, well, at least I'm not a robot. That's why my life is valuable. <laughs> like, or, you know, what if, what if my memories are manufactured? Do I feel any less myself or any, any less, we would say any less human, right? Um, because that's one of the things that everybody in the movie eventually has to face or consider is, you know, that a, their mortality, that everything's going to go away and be their, their value. Like if I'm only valuing myself, because I know that I'm human. I'm not like those others. Like it's there. You could go in a million different directions with how that what what you want to, what that's an analogy for in the modern world. But they all. I mean, Rachel struggles with it. It's her main struggle. Even the the escape replicants struggle with it because they want they want to be they want to live and not just because they want to live. They want to be like everybody else. Like why do, why do I only get four years and you get longer? Uh, and you know it's not fair that some people live longer than others. And like there's there's a lot in this movie to dig out and it's it's amazing that the the movie works in some fashion whether he's a replicant or not i just like the additional layer not the the sort of twist or gotcha but the additional layer on top of that and i like it so you're like i don't like it when you know uh, don't want it to be nailed down i feel like it's not ambiguous but it is ambiguous in that people don't follow along with movies that well like in the same way that total recall is not ambiguous about the ending of that movie which is an entire other discussion it seems ambiguous to people because it doesn't hit you over the head with it. You have to put two and two together with the unicorn thing. And conceivably, if you don't understand probabilities and, and filmmaking, you'd be like, well, what if he just happened to pick a unicorn that day? Like, <laughs> what if they just happened to show us his unicorn? Like, it, it's, you know, but it, but it doesn't come out and say, Deckard, you know, says, that's when I realized I was a replicant. Like, he never says that, or no one says it to him, or there's no realization other than just a look on his face, right? And then, you know, he's out the, in the elevator. So I, I like that for, again, walking the line between being on the nose and and being subtle and that's exactly what i want out of, out of a movie i wanted to i wanted to flatter my intelligence by not uh spelling things out for me but i wanted to be comprehensible so that i follow along like everyone wants that they want to be right on the edge like you want it to be you want to feel good for figuring it out uh but you don't want it to be so difficult that you have to like read a web page to do so so i mean i'll say overall like I feel better about this movie than I did before. Like, there's still stuff in it that are just it's just weird to me. Um, but the the ending and and stuff like that, and the, and the removal of the voiceover, I find it just to be more to my tastes. Um, and I still think that this movie is beautiful. Like, it's even more beautiful. Like, it, in in this one, mm-hmm. I, I just found the visuals to be even more compelling. So, I mean, I like this movie. I do. I do like it. Um, I, it's just not one of my favorites and I don't think it ever will be. Yeah. I, I, I second that, that it's, I think going back to, I don't, I don't make an emotional connection with this movie, so I appreciate it, but I don't love it. Uh, but I appreciate it for what it is. And the fact is I have seen it like five times now. So (laughs) there must be something there. Is it five full times though? Oh yeah, no. I, like my, two, two and three. No, Lauren, or Lauren falls asleep. I don't fall asleep. I get sleepy while I'm watching it. But but right. when I've shown it to Lauren, she's falling asleep every time. So I don't do that anymore. I watch this by myself. So I never. I don't list, put this on my list of favorite movies. Not because it's dark, because I do like a lot of dark movies. But because it does, you know, it does have the all the things that we've talked about. They sort of, you know. Uh, pacing unevenness and some of the weird dialogue choices in the middle and, and you know and in general it's not as grand or epic or sweeping as you know some of uh, my favorite movies or not as like as perfect as some of like the miyazaki stuff is that, that i put in there right but this stands in a category of movies that i remember seeing and noting their difference 
noting that they were they were different than other movies they were they were weird outliers like there's a lot of movies that are like this a lot of them do become cult classics that yeah maybe they're not the best movies but they do certain things so differently than their contemporaries that they stand out and then you take notice like oh wait a second like i thought you know a lot of times you go you watch a movie you kind of know what to expect like oh it's it's an action movie it's comedy i've seen a bunch of these i kind of know the formulas you know of the contemporary movies that are going to be like that and when one of them comes out and is different it it sort of stands aside and i was always attracted to that as a kid whether it's uh, you know japanese animation that i would see and note note the difference like oh this isn't this doesn't look like the animation on saturday morning cartoons it is is different in a really important way and it set it aside blade runner is like that the movie making is different of course you discussed in the past episode how influential the sort of dark future design was that we now see everywhere this was the 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 first and most influential instance of that that ripple through history like that's why i set it aside but yeah, in the, in the Pantheon of movies, it's not up there with like The Godfather and Kiki's Delivery Service and The Empire Strikes Back because it's just not as good a movie as those. But it is as important a movie and that it goes off on this other shelf with me of like these weird movies. I don't know. I don't know how I categorize them. Like they stand out in history. Mm. They're, they're like they're they're like icons. And that when I watch them originally and when you watch them now, they're like, you know, this is so different than its contemporaries. Mr. Syracuse, thank you for joining us today for all of the wonder that you have brought to this episode. Where can people find you online and, and follow your work and, and such? Well, I have a website that I write on almost once a year called oh, hypercritical.co. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, at Syracuse. Uh, and I do a bunch of podcasts on various networks uh, that if you go to hypercritical.co and click on about, you can find links to all of them. All right. If you want to find our show notes for this week's episode, head on over to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 155. I want to thank our sponsors one more time, Blue Apron, Ting, Encapsula, and Mac Weldon. You can find Jason online. He's at jsnell on Twitter. He writes at sixcolors.com. Uh, I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. And don't forget, uh, become a Relay FM member. Go to relay.fm slash membership to find out more, and you will get access to a whole host of incredible content that's coming your way um, over August and September, as well as just a lot of ongoing, really great benefits that we try and do for our Relay FM members. I want to just extend my thanks to our amazing guests today, Stephen, uh, Alex, and John. And also, as always, thank you, Jason. We'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye. Bye, Mike. Uh, We'll see you in two weeks, and I'll be back with my special mystery guest next week. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) 